the year is 2021. As the world faces threats of both a pandemic and rampant stupidity, the future of movie theaters and film itself begins to look uncertain. Amid the chaos, two film geeks try to make sense of it all. When all hope seems lost for our pair of cinephiles, a beacon of light shines in the distance. A trailer so beautiful, so insane, and so over the top that it might just be the film to pull our heroes from their malaise. That film is Godzilla vs. Kong. Our nerdy duo sees this as a call to arms and embarks on a journey that few would dare, with one a seasoned Godzilla expert and the other an optimistic newcomer. Together, they will take the franchise head-on, watching all 35 Godzilla films in a time span few mortals could manage, all leading up to the grand finale of Godzilla vs. Kong. Join them as they escape to Monster Island. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of our podcast. We are the Not Buff Film Buffs. My name's Wes Skinner, and this is Josh Lapierre. And thanks so much for joining us for our very first series, Escape to Monster Island. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, bud. Anytime, man. Josh is my good pal, my uh, resident Godzilla guru, and my lifelong cousin. <laughs> Uh, all right, so on this podcast here, what we're going to be doing is going through the Godzilla franchise, every single movie, all... It's 35, 35. and 36 is on the way. All 35 Godzilla films leading up to Godzilla vs. Kong coming out in, when is the exact date? March 31st, 2021. Sweet. So uh, we will be doing these in the eras that the Godzilla films are divided into. Josh, I feel like you probably have a little better insight explaining the eras. So if you want to kind of explain what that means when I say that. All right. Yeah. So Godzilla is a long running franchise starting in 1954. It has been broken up into four distinct eras in the Japanese side of the franchise. We have Showa, which ran from 1954 to 1975, starting with Gojira and ending with Terror of Mechagodzilla. Then in the 80s, we started with the Heisei franchise, which was the return of Godzilla to Godzilla vs. Destroya. Then we have the third franchise, the Millennium Era, which started with Godzilla 2000 Millennium and ended with Final Wars. Then we went on a huge 12-year hiatus, the longest hiatus in the Japanese franchise. And that era is now known as the Reiwa Era. And started in 2016 with Shin Godzilla. And it currently is ended with the anime trilogy film, Godzilla the Planet Eater, which was the last of the anime. But because of the MonsterVerse, which is the current ongoing American franchise, Toho has taken a break and will restart once Godzilla vs. Kong has released. <laughs> appreciate that. So yeah, so anyone listening who is not familiar with the franchise can probably tell that it's a lot. There's a lot going on. There's both Japanese can as well as an American canon. Both are unrelated, but also uh, the American one obviously borrows a lot from the Japanese one, uh, being inspired from it, except when excluding when we're talking about a certain film from 1998, which we will get to when we do that episode. Um, so we will be covering all the eras as well as the American films in a special episode and even a little Kong episode. Yeah, so we'll, uh, Josh, if you want to kind of explain your relationship with this franchise kind of how you got started into it when you were young all right so i've been a godzilla fan my entire life my brother 
grew up on it. He hates to say that he liked the franchise, but he thinks Godzilla is awesome still. Um, and my dad was uh, one of the main influences on it. I have very fond memories of being like three years old, watching King Kong versus Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, Invasion of Astro Monster, a lot of the classic Showa era. And after that, I started getting Godzilla toys for Christmas, and well, now I have almost probably 200 figures. I have all the franchise on Blu-ray, except for the anime trilogy. I've seen the two legendary films six times in theaters, so I live and breathe the franchise. I've signed artwork from comic book artists who have worked on the franchise. Yeah, I live and breathe it. I've seen it. It's cool. Cool stuff. Yeah, unlike you, I kind of got more into it from the film angle of, you know, Gojira, the original uh, 1954 being this pretty revolutionary piece of film coming not very shortly, I think a little just short of a decade after World War II. It would have been nine years. Yeah, so nine years um, after World War II and, and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the film being very inspired by those events in a really shocking, pretty gripping way. Uh, that just resonated with me when I first saw it. And of this franchise, of these 35, that's one of the maybe four that I've seen prior to doing this podcast. So this is really exciting. We're going to be watching this in chunks as well. So basically these first two episodes, we're going to be doing kind of a two-part premiere of this podcast uh, because the first era, the Showa era is so massive, 15 movies in total, which has been quite the adventure. We've sort of, we're sort of combining that into two segments here. And then we're doing, we're going to do the Heisei, Millennium and so on. But yeah, so let's see. So anyways, having only seen such a small portion of this franchise, really excited just in general to kind of see where it goes, you know, and having known that I remember Josh, you watching these when we were young and just being like, how does he watch 35 of these bad boys? And how does he, you know, you watch them repeatedly. It was not just like one viewing. Yeah. So I was always impressed by that and really wanted to get into kind of there's very few franchises like this one, I think. I, I don't think there's a lot of franchises that are A, this long running, and B, have so many different blends of tone and genre. And it's just very, you would think you've seen one, you've seen them all. And in some of these, a few chunks, that's kind of the case. But for the most part, there's very, I think there's probably a Godzilla movie out there for everybody. They just don't know it yet. So there's very few franchises you can say that with. So it's pretty cool. And one thing that definitely helped with me uh, being able to catch up on the franchise was the uh, 10-year hiatus between uh, Final Wars and Legendary's reboot franchise in the MonsterVerse. So that, that era wow, definitely really that helped. Uh, yep. Wow. That's crazy and to think about. two years later, Toho finally returned with Shin Godzilla. Yep. And Toho being, for anyone listening, is the Japanese studio who started all these films. And um, that's sort of how, that was another gateway sort of for me into it. Because I'm a big film fan in general, but especially of Kurosawa's work and a lot of his samurai films from the 1950s. Yojimbo, Sinjuro, well those are early 60s, but also, you know, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, stuff like that. And those were all produced through Toho as well. So that was really, really cool to kind of get that crossover. And as we'll see later on, we get a lot of different actors, people popping in and out. So that's really exciting. And then, yeah, I kind of, another thing I wanted to talk about too is I think what's interesting about this franchise, again, you know, another thing that makes it unique from any other franchise is that if you look on kind of Rotten Tomatoes or any sort of review aggregator, that sort of thing, you'll see the critic scores are, there will be like seven reviews 
to 10 reviews. And then when you look at the audience scores, there's hundreds and thousands. <laughs> it's crazy. It, there's, I think there were like Ghidorah, I think I looked at and there were like at least 4,000 or something like that audience reviews compared to like seven critics reviews. So it's just crazy that it's something that has such a huge cult following, but is so little talked about in film groups. So that was another reason why I wanted to dive into this franchise and kind of explore it a little more, being such a fan of film in general. And another thing that doesn't help is a lot of the American critic scores and everything come from the international and English cuts of the film and not the original Japanese one. So they get the butchered scenes, the bad lip synced dubs. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I, uh, Thank God Criterion exists. <laughs> exactly. And that being said, another thing that has made this so much easier because obviously I've had to hunt down all these films in the process. And uh, we'll get to it later in Heisei, but there was one in particular that was like the Ark of the Covenant rare. <laughs> yep. And uh, you could definitely melt some Nazi faces with this one. Uh, yeah, it was impossible to find. And, you know, Josh, you had told me, you're like, yeah, I, I used to have to go through this with every one of these movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Growing up trying to, you know, view all these movies, I would, I would show up to like FYE and be like, is there a new Godzilla movie out on DVD that I haven't seen yet? I didn't see the entire franchise up until 2010, I want to say, was when I finally got to see all of the films. Mm hmm. Last one being uh, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, which was actually a gift from you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just really cool stuff. And I think it's really interesting that I, I think because of that and obviously these kind of the revitalization of the American films coming out and everything helps kind of I think it's helping plant a little more interest in this franchise with people. And I think the criterion really struck at the right time. So if anyone's listening and is looking to get into these films if this podcast interests you at all you know gets you kind of enticed to see what it's all about criterion just released this like beautiful blu-ray collection of the first 15 films the showa era and it is awesome that is one of the coolest things i've ever owned yeah <laughs> I, I love it yeah it's great so yeah uh without further ado i think we'll start with the very first film in the series the original 1954 Gojira. So this film tells the story of Godzilla, who is a huge prehistoric beast roused from his ancient slumber by H-bomb testing in the South Pacific, who proceeds to lay waste to Tokyo. Only the young scientist, Daisuke Surizawa, holds the key to possibly defeating the invincible monster, a deadly chemical weapon called the Oxygen Destroyer. However, even as the destruction mounts, Surizawa fears revealing his invention to the world. Out of fear, it will become a far worse threat to humanity than nuclear weapons. So this is one, like I said, this is one of the few of the franchise that I have seen. And I think I've seen it probably about four times now. And every time I'm reminded of why it's a masterpiece. I mean, it is one of those few films that people could hype you up for it, but not really be able to prepare you for watching this thing. I mean, it is depressing. It is dark. It is beautiful. And it is so not like any of the... <laughs> a lot of what a, a huge chunk of what this franchise becomes known for which is so fascinating i mean it really is lightning in a bottle and i'm so impressed with the effects every time because obviously they were limited you know and it doesn't feel that way when you watch it so quick little interjection about yeah. the special effects is mm -hmm. they wanted to do stop motion just like king kong because that was a huge influence on the film sure definitely yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And are any of the effects in it stop motion? 
Nope. Or is it, it's all the, the guy it's in the suit, all right? all suitmation yep. and miniatures. Which again, those listening, suitmation is essentially just guys in suits. <laughs> and which, yep. if, if that sounds corny, it 100% would be if this movie wasn't filmed in such a way that it makes you feel the size and scale of everything that's going on. I mean, there's close-ups on Godzilla's feet and his tail smashing through buildings and... I mean, yeah, you can just feel the, like, they use these effects to make you just feel the devastation of just the relentless, you know, depression and fear being imposed on these people um, that you can imagine is is very similar to how they felt during the events of the bombings. And yeah, it's, it still gets me every time. Josh, what are your, what were your thoughts on this rewatch? I honestly, like you said, I forget how amazing this movie is. Every time I rewatch it, it just it hits you every time. I think this is like the first time I really kind of got choked up when it shows the aftermath and you hear like you see the children crying over their dead parents. And yeah, um, that that shocked me. I didn't remember that from my previous view. There is one scene that will always stick in my head. So this is a franchise that has infamy for corniness and uh, we will get to that further in the franchise especially oh boy, in the 70s will we? oh, oh boy, those will 70s we? films oh boy but with this one the scene that sticks with me the most is during godzilla's rampage so obviously this is nine years after bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki and world war ii is over japan's finally opened the talk about films or the war using film and everything and during this rampage Godzilla is going on in Tokyo, it cuts to this mother holding, I think, three kids. And she's, you know, they're all crying and she's holding them saying, don't worry, we're going to be with daddy soon. Alluding to the fact yep. that he, you know, died during the war and everything. Yeah. And it's just, that's one of the darkest moments. You just see Godzilla rampage and his mother just clutches her kids knowing she and them are going to die. It's just it's like, horrible. what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And I, I really feel like that's kind of the timelessness of this movie. I mean, it really, it really works still because it, it rather than feeling like a lot of films from the fifties feel like feeling very dated, feeling like, you know, uh, I feel like a lot of films kind of isolate you if you weren't there for that, you know, obviously we didn't grow up in Japan. We definitely didn't grow up in the fifties. So we have no idea what it's like. So this movie, rather than, you know, making you feel isolated, making you feel like you kind of need to understand the context, it gives you the context. It straight up lays it all out for you and isn't really afraid to kind of get into those dark things. I mean, in a way, this is, a, you know, certain scenes of it, if you can detach yourself emotionally, you know, it is a really like just I hesitate to use the word fun, but you know, the destruction scenes are fascinating to watch. They're really cool. Just the way they're done, you know, the tripping through the power lines is iconic, uh, you know, stuff like that. Really, really gorgeous stuff. But yeah, the movie never really lets you forget what it's all about. And again, we kind of touched on briefly in the synopsis, the what's even more fascinating than the fallout kind of of everything is them sort of fighting and struggling with the idea of using and creating and using a weapon that's even worse, right, than the thing that caused them this devastation. And, and that's kind of, that's where the movie, I think, kind of really elevates into something more than just a, 
hit you on the head allegory. I mean, it's really something that kind of makes you sit and and really think, you know, and, and contemplate about what we do to each other and what as humans and big, big stuff you wouldn't expect from a movie that is a dude in a suit walking around on tiny miniature buildings. You know, I mean, it's really incredible what they're able to accomplish. Definitely. It just ends on such a somber note, too. It's unlike most American films where it's like, woohoo, we killed the monster. Go America. The movie ends and it's just like, yo, if we continue on this path, more Godzillas could show up and more destruction can happen. That was something I really appreciated about it. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you said, it it could have been this big heroic moment. And I think maybe that, you know, not to speak too broadly on it, because obviously not every American war film is like this. But I think if you if you look back, that does reflect on kind of our experience with the war versus Japan's is that a lot of American World War Two films, not all of them, but a lot of them end with a sort of cathartic, victorious feel, right? Like they have this like big patriotic exhale at the end. And this didn't really, you know, this movie doesn't do that. This movie is more of a, it really is a, a meditation on the violence that we cause each other. And it, it also does a good job of, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it leaves America out of the equation, which was a really interesting choice, I think, too. It doesn't, you know, it. this isn't a movie that's here to point fingers. It's a movie that's here to just kind of examine war as a whole which is is really really a cool way to do it and really kind of again i think makes it so accessible to to really everyone i i would be amazed if anyone watched this and didn't come out with a pretty emotional reaction of some kind yeah because um i believe it was tomiyuki tanaka who is the producer i believe from literally gojira all the way up into 1995 with godzilla versus desestroya I believe it was him who was flying over, I believe it was either Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and just seeing the destruction after the bombs had gone off, and that stuck with him. And then earlier in 1950, I believe it was in 1954, they had the Lucky Dragon incident, which was a tuna vessel that I believe was actually got too close to Bikini Atoll um, when they were testing the nuclear weapons, and that boat got hit with the radiation aftermath. And Japan was scared that we were coming back at them with more nukes. And so that was a huge fear, and it caused their tuna supply to be irradiated. So that's actually something that gets mentioned in Gojira. Is okay, yeah. They're, they're like, it was on a scene, and a couple of just supporting cast members on a train, and they were like, you know, first Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then the tuna incident, and now Gojira. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really shows that, like, you know, for lack of a better expression, like, you know, Japan really could not take a breather at all for years. I mean, this, uh, you can't, how can you after something like that? And yeah, again, something the movie really doesn't shy away from. You brought up the cast and that's something we actually haven't talked about yet. I think this movie does a really good job. I think a lot of, not to give away any spoilers to later American films, but I think a lot of the issue with a lot of American disaster movies of this type, I think, and, and, you know, disaster movies in general, really, and a lot of even the later Godzilla movies, Japanese and otherwise, are that they don't really, they try so hard to tie a human story into the main story. And I think what this movie does best is just that the human story is the Godzilla story. I mean, making this all about Godzilla it makes the characters relatable enough. We don't need any subplots, really. You have a little bit of that, but 
the movie never forgets what it's about and it never forgets you know that the most captivating thing about this movie is focusing on humans reactions to this devastation going on and i think it never forgetting that and it really 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 helps to make the humans relatable and takashi shimura always great to see him is a plays dr yamane man's a man's a genius i love that man plays a nice quiet and like reserved and he he wants to study godzilla because I actually have a direct quote is Godzilla was baptized in the fire of the H bomb and survived. And so I'm, he wants, he wants to study that, that quote. Yeah. I, I really love that. And his, his fascination with that is, is really, really, uh, I think one of the most compelling human narratives in the movie. Yeah, And it's not, not like, it's not the mad scientist wants to keep Godzilla alive. It's no, he wants to learn from it so humans have a chance of being able to survive this kind of attack yep on the subject of mad scientists though i would like to bring up that the one thing and this movie everything else about this movie is so good that i would hesitate to really call it a fault but the one thing that brings me out of it just a tiny bit when i watch it is how organic and relatable all of the scenes in the villages and or like the outskirt villages and the actual like you know, city itself, uh, those all feel very grounded. But then you go to Surizawa's kind of place, his lab, right? And it kind of almost looks like this 1930s, like universal horror, exactly. Uh, and he's got an eye patch, which makes it even more theatrical. And I love it. And I think the performance is great. I love the actor. Akihiko Harata. Thank you. But there's something odd about that part that portion of the movie uh that just feels like it's maybe out of a different movie i don't know do you feel that way at all a little i know um it's referenced that he was a scientist during world war ii and so that's how he got the eye patch yeah which um sometimes i don't think that's really it's kind of you pick that up more if you watch it a second time Mm -hmm. I don't feel like they really discuss it because this was also at a time where Japan was finally allowed to open up about their, you know, views on the war. Because after World War II, the, you know, U.S. was like, knock, knock, censorship time. Yeah. Yeah. And so a good few years after World War II, they were finally allowed to talk, you know, give their thoughts. So we got to see more sympathetic characters who dealt with the war. And yeah, I mean, late 40s early 50s Japanese cinema really exploded post-war because they were finally able to be relieved of, you know, making war propaganda films and got to kind of do what they wanted. And obviously the first thing on a lot of people's minds was the effects of the war. So they got to explore that in really creative ways, this being probably the best example of that. So really, really good stuff. Um, Did you have any other thoughts on this one before we move on? Um, just that uh, this was also the first Godzilla film to bring in, I called the big four of the franchise who uh, stayed around for a good portion of it. It's director Ishiro Honda, effects supervisor and director A.J. Subaraya, producer Tomiyuki Tanaka, and composer Akira Afukabe, who Afukabe actually created the iconic da-da-da-da-da-da yeah. theme along I'm- with Godzilla's roar. He was the creator of that. I'm actually um, currently ashamed of myself for 
even thinking, even debating of moving on from this movie without talking about the score, because it is part of what makes this movie so ominous and so great. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, oh, no problem. <laughs> this this music is so good. Yeah. You have that opening theme. You have like the military theme. You have, I mean, there's, there's a lot of motifs that we'll discuss later on that pop in and out of the franchise that started with this original movie. And again, it's interesting too, because they definitely feel like they have a different context later on, <laughs> you know, when the movies become a little more lighthearted. But in this film, they work as such, especially that main theme in the beginning just works as such this like imposing, just like it's exciting in like a thrilling kind of way, like a blockbuster, like you feel like you're watching something big and epic, but also in like a doom and gloom kind of way, like that big and epic yeah. thing is bad and it's coming and it's coming fast just that steady kind of rhythmic tension that the the music has is just so beautiful and really really scary to just listen to <laughs> but oh, yeah especially godzilla's rampage on tokyo where it's all like the brass section and like the bass and everything yeah. it's just very ominous and, and i remember cool. notating that the the score feels modern i mean it doesn't feel like this very music back it's then timeless yeah, yeah, and and music back then really kind of it, it makes or breaks a lot of '50s movies for me because so many movies you'd have this great scene of tension, but the music would just drive home exactly how you're supposed to feel, you know, like yeah. oh, cue the violins for the romantic scene, or you know, <laughs> get the heavy drums for the big imposing scene. But you know, this this does it in a way so that it it kind of leaves you uneasy. It doesn't really tell you exactly how to feel. The music's really kind of up for interpretation like the rest of the movie and i think in that way it suits it so perfectly um so yeah i think needless to say that's like it's it's an easy film to talk about but it's also hard because obviously we're not going to disagree much on this one this one is such a oh yeah almost anyone you talk to i feel like for the most part um you know i would almost be interested to talk to someone who maybe this movie didn't connect with just because it is such a fascinating movie but i could totally see it not working for everyone especially if they're expecting a big fun monster movie uh which this is not uh i will say that oh sorry go ahead I was going to say, this is this is the opposite of a fun one. This is not like your Frankensteins or your Draculas, where they're suspenseful but fun. And this is not King Kong, where it's an island adventure. No, this one is, uh, shit gets real. <laughs> it's moody, it's atmospheric, and it's so strange that it kicks off an era that will later be known for something much, much different. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this this movie really stands the test of time. And I am always excited to have an excuse to watch it again. So <laughs> that was great. And side note, yeah, I showed my girlfriend Leah it um, when I watched this. And I put her through a lot of Godzilla movies for this <laughs> this <laughs> marathon leading up to the podcast. But uh, she really, really, really appreciated it. And it felt really kind of, she agreed, yeah, it just feels timeless. And it really does not show its age Masterpiece. at all. Yep. And it is important to note here, I forgot to mention it earlier, that watching through all these, I will only be watching the chunks before each episode of the podcast. So as of up to this point... um, We've only watched the first 15, and we have not started the Heisei era yet. Correct. So Josh, having seen all of the upcoming movies, hasn't watched them recently, and I have not watched them at all. So it will be very exciting to get into all those. So that being said, uh, let's move on to the second one. You want to go ahead and... All right, so the second film in the franchise is Godzilla Raids Again from 1955. Before I get into the synopsis, 
just like past Hollywood features, this was sadly a cash grab after the massive success that Gojira brought Toho after near bankruptcy, which was also brought on by Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Godzilla Raids Again came out only 172 days after the release of Gojira. Wow, I knew it was soon. I had no idea it was that soon. Yeah, Gojira came out in November 1954, and Raids Again came out, I believe, March of 1955. So, very quick turnaround. Anyway, the film follows two pilots who discover a second Godzilla locked in battle with Anguirus and report the story to Japanese authorities. As Godzilla and Anguirus's battle threatens to decimate the pilot's beloved home of Osaka, the two men will play a key role in the decisive battle to save Japan from Godzilla's wrath. All right, Josh, so what do you think of this one? All right, for this one, um, like I said, it's kind of a cash grab, so it was a little bit more of a rushed production. Very little of the original production crew returned for this one, sadly, so no Ishiro Honda, no Akira Fukabe. Tomiyuki Tanaka returned to produce. Like I said, he's the producer on all the films up until Destroya. And uh, Haru Nakajima returns to portray Godzilla once again, which he actually plays Godzilla in the first 13? No, First 12 movies, I take that back. That's a lot of suit sweat. Oh, yeah. One thing we forgot to mention is they would literally get cups of sweat out of each suit (laughs) after about 20 minutes of filming. Mind you, these suits also weighed upwards of 200 pounds. Yeah, that's... um... That's all I could think about in some of these scenes. <laughs> Especially oh, yeah. this this was the first one I think I really like. You know, the other one, the suit usage is so subtle. But with this one, it was the first time I was like, man, that's that's a guy in there. Yep. This is um also they've slimmed down the suit a lot from the nineteen fifty four one because this is the one that starts the royal rumbles between the monsters. Um, like I said in the uh, synopsis, they introduce mainstay monster Angiris, who sadly actually doesn't show up in the franchise for another 13 years after this movie. But this is, uh, like I said, the first time we got to see them do the iconic, you know, two ba- monsters battling it out in the city. And sadly, when they filmed it, they had an editing error. where So they filmed it at a higher rate and then slowed the footage down to give it off this, you know, huge you know monsters to fight but when they were editing it they accidentally left in the sped up film giving it really like fast-paced action so it looks a little off when you watch it yeah i was gonna ask you about that because the i i actually appreciated a lot of the action in this and and this would come to be only or this would come to be the last black and white one we would get um which i think they really you know that first one really capitalizes off the use of the black and white cinematography um whereas this one does too but things are a little more open there's a little more there's less kind of use of silhouettes and close-ups of feet stomping on buildings and tails whipping things down you know a lot more wide shots in this one exactly and part of that just to show the you know, monsters, both just monsters going and, and shot and everything. Exactly. Which is where I feel like is, is the first, there's a lot of indicators in this, that the series is going to become, this would become else. the blueprint that would later become the next set of 13 films. Yep. So yep. there, are, there are some excellent shots in this movie. Um, one of them I absolutely adore is when 
Gojira and Anguirus have their little standoff right in front of Osaka Castle where there there's no music playing. It's just them, you know, shuffling around and it's just very well all low angles, almost like it's from the human's perspective. And it's so cool just looking up at them as they're kind of, you know, waiting to see who's going to make the first attack. I was going to say, too, with that scene, it was so funny because all I could think of, knowing exactly where it was going to go once they squared off on either side of this building, <laughs> the, I knew that that thing was coming down. You just know that oh. thing's going down. Oh, and yeah. Osaka Castle is no more after this fight. It's a gorgeous recreation. It's so cool looking. Uh, but, yeah, you just the whole time you're like, all right, one of these... One of these bastards going to knock this thing over because you know it's coming. And it actually kind of starts a recurring gag for the next set of films where there's always one Japanese pagoda that gets destroyed. <laughs> that's like a mainstay of the franchise. Yeah, that's a good. I didn't think of that, but that absolutely happens quite a bit. There's so many times when you see a building and you like just like you start rooting for the building. You're like, <laughs> oh, hang in there, buddy. You're so close. And, you know, and then just one of them gets toppled over and it's just oh, yeah. or, or trips. There's a lot of. Love tripping. <laughs> yeah, that's also mainly because the actors can't see out the suits most of the time. Feel bad for them. <laughs> Wait, so was the tripping unintentional? Um, the tripping into not to skip too far into the franchise, but there is one scene where uh, in God uh, Mothra versus Godzilla, where he trips into Nagoya Castle, I believe. Okay. Is. Um, which is a very iconic scene that's spread all throughout the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um. Yeah, I so this one you can immediately tell from the opening credits that this was something different, right? I mean, you can yeah, kind even of, with the music, it's very bombastic, very like Hollywood, like yes. go get them type music. It felt more a little more like a American movie of that time, and just kind of like yeah, hyping up what was coming, and you can clearly tell that the focus here there was a lot of trade off of you know less metaphors, less allegory, and kind of trading that out for and there's a little bit of that stuff here, but mostly it traded that out for monsters beating ass yeah, um one of the scenes that would still reference you know World War two era things is when they did a blackout of Osaka, which during World War two major cities would do blackouts to kind of keep air raids from happening. So when Godzilla and Anguirus are getting close, they black out the city of Osaka in hopes that Godzilla won't come ashore and destroy the city during his battle, which sadly fails miserably for them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, another thing I noticed about this movie when you were talking about the limited budget is the scene where I think that made that the most obvious is when there's like a three minute montage of greatest hits from the last movie uh, where they're all oh, in yeah. kind of that boardroom, right? Watching the projector. Yep, I actually even have that mentioned in my notes. <laughs> so it's essentially just this like, hey, remember last time? In case you didn't, it's going to take up a good chunk of our runtime. And I was kind of like, wow, this movie's already pretty short. Yeah, definitely running slim there. And you could tell that when they do get to the Godzilla and Gears fight, they were like, all right, boys, we got one shot at this. Let's just go all out, break everything, destroy everything, get every shot of these two creatures you can, because this is the one big scene that we're doing with these two in it. I do feel like the fighting had sort of, especially the fast forwarding doesn't help so much, but the <laughs> I do feel like it had this kind of Godzilla and Anguirus are like two drunken giant assholes who just carried their fight outside of the bar and into Osaka. Like it's oh yeah, oh that is definitely it. 
it felt so like these guys are just dicks. Like they're just these giant dickheads. And <laughs> Godzilla is just a belligerent asshole who is beating Anguirus' ass. Oh, and yeah. Kills him by, he like bites his throat a bunch and then tosses yep. him on the ground and then lights him on fire. And that's when I was like, wow, he's just a prick. Yep. <laughs> which i have to say is one of the elements of the series that probably surprised me the most is i knew he was a bad guy in a big chunk of them you know honest obviously he becomes uh no savior of Japan. for later yeah but he becomes sort of a, a savior figure fighting evil monsters but i was surprised at for how many movies in a row godzilla is just an asshole and again my, right. <laughs> my girlfriend watching this with me she's like uh She's like, I don't like Godzilla. He's a dick. Like she rooted for every other monster, but was just like, Godzilla's just an asshole, and uh, he does not give a single shit. And I was pretty, I was pretty surprised at how, like I said, just belligerent he is for the first like chunk of movies. And one thing that also kind of started, especially with this one, is poor Anguirus is continuously the underdog for the rest of the franchise. Yeah, Anguirus can't catch a break. That's for oh, sure. Oh, no. This one um, definitely nailed that one on the head. Describing him for people at home, he's kind of like a armadillo-rhino hybrid, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> with like um, a spiked turtle Kind of like an ankylosaurus. Um, he's got on his shell instead of it just being like a regular shell it's a whole bunch of uh spikes mm -hmm. uh, he also walks around on all fours yet you can tell the suit actor is just on his knees yep he's to crawl around and everything he's definitely one of the cooler looking monsters and I, I i have to admit i was impressed despite a lot of the holes kind of showing in this movie i was impressed by how good Anguirus looked. I kind of expected yeah. him to look pretty doofy right off the bat, which I do think it needs to be said. Godzilla, when he, in these early stages, when he's not shot like he was in Gojira 54, he looks pretty doofy, like significantly oh, yeah. his, more his doofy. His teeth are like jutting out. It is very, <laughs> it is a very cheap suit compared to the first suit. He's a dopey boy. He's just a dopey boy. Um, what what else? Uh, or some. So, how do you feel about this one? Kind of on the grand um, scale of things. It's it's a it's good, but coming so close off the backs of the original, it's so easy to overlook this one. It is. I mean, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, like it does start off the whole you know Godzilla versus X monster, but again with its rushed production, it almost killed the franchise too. Godzilla yeah. would go another seven years without a film. And I can't help but hold it against this one for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it, it's it's unfortunate because there are a lot of good ideas. And I think if they had the time and budget and resources that that first film had, I think this would be a pretty decent film. Oh, um, yeah. And this was directed by... Um, no no it he wasn't. didn't like i said he didn't return for this one um i honestly forgot to take notes on who uh directed this one gotcha. but um it was a one-time director i know that he okay. uh, never returned for any other film in the franchise and everything and that bums me out too because again i i feel like there were some well-directed set pieces there were some cool ideas here i think you know a lot of these films you get kind of a mix of like they kind of market it as like oh it's going to be this big clash between two creatures and some of these you'd only get that for like the last five minutes right but for this yeah. you get a pretty lengthy chunk in the middle 
where it's that right and then it kind of becomes more just focused on like military versus godzilla um which is a mainstay of the franchise at this point <laughs> yeah exactly but you know for that monster stuff it, it's one of the movies especially in the early ones where the fight really like delivers as far as quantity goes you know you get this yeah. big but there's definitely no shortage of destruction uh and chaos i do feel like the finale i think because that middle f- chunk is so good the finale just kind of falls a little short did you feel the that finale way? is very lacking especially um in the effects side because there's um they made a little puppet that was supposed to walk and everything or emulate walking but <laughs> it broke oh no of course it yeah. broke yeah. So we get brief shots where it is standing completely still. Like looks it literally looks like I took an action figure, set it on the table and took a picture. <laughs> and but, put it in an uh, ice machine where it's Oh just... yeah. And it's you you with shots like that, you can tell they just rushed this out to make money. Yep. Um, and it just leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth when you watch it. For anyone who hasn't seen this, this scene the set piece is essentially uh they come up with the idea to bury Godzilla in an avalanche and they're shooting the mountains above him to basically collapse this ice around him and bury him. <laughs> it looks like he's in an ice machine. One, two, he, he's aquatic, right? Like we've seen him go into water and he's on yep. an Island. Like he's, he's literally right there near water. And there were so many times in this fight where I was like, all he has to do is take a few steps and just go into that water and they can't bury him in ice. But instead, he stands there for 10 yep. minutes, and they bury him in ice. <laughs> it's so confusing. It's so baffling. Yep. Uh, so that was just a very odd, uh, you know, and I'm not usually one to, to nitpick at things like that. You know, if, if it's a and, cool set piece, it's a cool set piece. But the set piece didn't work, so I feel like the holes just show. And it's also a very long scene, too. It's so it's surprised, long. It's surprising how long that you'd think that it's like, oh, we'll bury him and that'll be that. Yep. No, it goes on for like 10, almost 15 minutes, it feels like, of them just you flying the plane, blowing up the mountain, flying a plane, yep. blowing up. Oh, he destroyed one of the planes. Because you could tell this movie was... The note I made to basically sum up this whole movie is it feels like three movies awkwardly pasted together, but also feels like half of one movie. Like it feels like all these things could have been stitched together. um, But instead what you get is these two or three big set pieces that you could tell they wanted to go all out on. And then a very like very light structure of a human story around it with these pilots and kind of a borderline romantic story maybe with yeah there's a there's some hints of a romantic story in there yeah it's Um, just none of it feels it all feels kind of not fully hashed out yeah uh not to knock any of the human cast because honestly rewatching this i was kind of surprised i kind of liked some of the human characters and i wrote down his name uh minoru uh Chiaki, I apologize if I butchered that. Um, and Takashi Shimura is is back, and both of them are in Seven Samurai. So that was really cool to kind of see them have a little a little reunion there. Yeah, and uh, this is the first film to introduce Hiroshi Koizumi, who would go on to star in a couple of Toho's other sci-fi films, along with Mothra, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Oh wow! A he couple of the other franchise films. Right. And was he the guy who played the other pilot? He played the main pilot. He okay. was the leading actor in this yep. one. Yeah, I think 
overall it's it's not i wouldn't call it a bad film i think it's just it's just pieces of a decent one you know yeah is what it is what it feels like all right so moving on to very very different film here uh, the first big crossover in the franchise uh king kong versus godzilla this one is a doozy um, so awakened from his icy slumber seven years after he was trapped within ice at the conclusion of godzilla raids again godzilla resumes his campaign of destruction against japan meanwhile the company pacific pharmaceuticals discovers the legendary giant demon god king kong on the remote Faroe Island and brings him to Japan for advertising purposes. When Kong escapes and runs loose in Japan, it is only a matter of time before the two behemoths meet in a fight to the finish. And that movie is as crazy as that synopsis suggests. I was not ready for this movie. <laughs> so this one was interesting because I think I went into it being sort of tailored with a modern movie mindset of expecting, you know, this big clash, this big crossover between the biggest American movie monster of all time and the biggest Japanese movie monster of all time. It just, it felt like this perfect like combination. And I was so pumped for what I kind of, for some reason built up in my head, head to be this big badass movie. Instead, they take a very different approach it's very satirical. It's very over the top. It's very intentionally goofy. And it was fascinating <laughs> to say the least. I think these three films in a row kind of give you every shade of Godzilla that you would eventually get in show era, um, whether, you know, it's pieces of later films or just kind of all together. This really feels like, we're kind of getting at this point, it just felt like the franchise was just trying different things. And this was the most different thing they could have come up with. So Josh, what did you, uh, how did you feel about this movie before the rewatch and did the rewatch change anything for you? Well, for me, I grew up on the American cut. The American cut was vastly available here in the States. Thanks to it being under the license of universal. And when the criterion set released, they were able to get the rights to the original Japanese cut. So this was actually my first time seeing the Japanese cut from start to finish. And wow, did the American cut cut out a lot. <laughs> so I did not realize how like satirical this was. And it was very like anti-capitalism too. So it was just, it was so unique to see this because the American cut kind of played it off as a, they were satirical, but they were kind of trying to be serious at the same time. So it was really interesting to see this and honestly still dig the movie a lot. <laughs> it's uh yeah, so <laughs> let me start off by um I want to start off just kind of cuz there's so many differences between this and and the two that came before it. Obviously um, the Mind if I just cut you off one sec? Yeah, what's up? Before you get into your spiel. So this is actually also the return of the big four that I had mentioned in the first Godzilla movie. Of right, right, right. Honda, Fukube, Tanaka, and Subaraya. So this is after watching Gojira and then cutting to this one. It is so interesting to see. I'm glad where, you pointed um, that out too, because where the original creators brought this series. It's not a it's not a seamless jump. It's not it's not like a, oh it, like it doesn't feel like it. You would have no idea. 
that's one thing that I have to say, especially for, for Honda, the director, he directs a lot of movies in this franchise. And when I would be kind of researching a little bit about a movie before going into it, if I saw Honda directing it, I got to a point where I just realized that meant nothing because you could get anything from Honda. So yeah, I think I think one of the first big changes was throwing this one on and seeing color photography for the first time was really fucking cool. It was really sweet and the booming music at the beginning uh, really gets you hyped. And <laughs> that would it kind of uh it worked even further in kind of getting me to expect this like big epic thing and then they go directly into the head of the pharmaceutical company who i think we should shout out here is this guy is amazing he is the funniest character in probably the entire franchise do you have his name by chance uh i'm currently looking for it in my notes i know the character's name is mr taco <laughs> Is it really? Yep. It's spelled T A K O. Okay. Yep. I, I love the fact that I mentioned like every other actor but him. But yeah, he is a he is a scene stealer. He's, he's so good. Movie. He absolutely devours the scenery. Uh there's a scene pretty I don't know if it's like maybe like halfway. I forget what the context is exactly, but there's kind of two leaves sort of like in the foreground. And one of the human characters notices something and then those two leaves come up and you realize it's the guy holding those two leaves and he pulls them apart to reveal his big smiling face. (laughs) And that alone, I could watch that scene on mute and it would actually, it would absolutely crush me. But there's, there's multiple things like that. So essentially this, you know, it, it starts off with them going to the island to get King Kong and I will say this is kind of the first and maybe the only, there weren't a lot of, for a film franchise in the 50s and 60s, there weren't a lot of like problematic things in it. But oh, I, you, we I will say the- that this one, there's some skin tone issues there. There's some, uh, oh, yeah. they do some stuff that I'm like, all right, guys, maybe that's, uh, yeah, that's one not going to age well. One of the notes I have highlighted is uh, Japanese blackface. And I'm just like, it's, it's bad. It's really yeah. bad. And I had to like double take at first. I'm like, maybe it's just, nope, it's not. That's not natural yeah. at all. Pretty offensive there, <laughs> which I will say, uh, you know, I can acknowledge it's a different time, but it definitely, I can't help but have it put a little yeah. bad taste in my mouth watching that. Um, and however, luckily, this is one of like, two maybe three times they've ever gotten this problematic with that kind of stuff i was gonna say yeah there's really not there's really not a lot i think where there's an issue like that in these movies which is honestly pretty overall it's a pretty like refreshing good-hearted series i feel like this is the only one that really kind of takes a misstep like that or one of maybe one of i don't know if there's more later on but yeah i just think that uh you know it's it's something that you do kind of run into with films from this time so unfortunately you kind of have to take that for what it is and decide how it everyone for everyone it's going to be different how you kind of let that affect your whole thought of the movie however very shortly after we do get to probably one of the first like big iconic scenes which is the introduction of king kong which is fucking awesome oh yeah (laughs) him throwing rocks at an octopus which is potentially a real octopus? It, it is 100% a real <laughs> octopus. So I will go into that scene, actually. Please do. Please do. So one thing that's interesting about this movie is it all also takes inspiration from the original King Kong where they go to the island and 
you know, to retrieve Kong and everything, just like they did in the original. Everyone's in the village, and next thing you know, out of nowhere, no setup, no rhyme, no reason, giant octopus. Just, mm, giant octopus. Starts attacking the village, and all of a sudden, Kong appears behind the Great Wall, and uh, just starts throwing anything and everything at the octopus, which was portrayed by a puppet, and I believe, if I remember reading correctly, it was three separate live octopi that they uh, used to portray the crawling around on land, which apparently they ended up eating after they finished filming. I was going to say, so I want to say I read something about, uh, was it the producer maybe? Was it? I um, think it was AJ Subaraya. So okay. The, uh, the, <laughs> the effects guy, right? Yeah. 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 So not only do you have, and just so people at home don't get too concerned they're not actually throwing rocks at these octopuses there's like oh no it's blue really, screen it's really bad blue screen yeah you um, can see it like literally hit the wall and bounce onto the floor yeah it's horrible looking but it, it just adds to the goofy oh yeah and it's one of, of the only times stop motion is actually used in the franchise yeah. for the tentacles grabbing um the uh islanders Entry- oh yeah yeah i did yeah. notice that that's cool and then, of course, directly after that, we get... Uh, Kong getting shit-faced. Yeah, Kong gets a little exhausted after throwing all these rocks at this here octopus. So once the octopus runs like a little bitch, he sits down and decides to drink some red juice, have himself some some juice from these like pots, and just starts yep. drinking it until he gets boozed up, and then takes a nap. And then yep. they, that's, uh, that's their tactic. Then they're like, all right, let's strike while this iron's hot we'll carry this bad boy back back home uh, and just like past king kong and future king kong movies they never show you how the hell they get him off the island they never do he's just <laughs> napping from a, a booze binge after a night of throwing rocks at octopuses and then octopi and then ends up on wakes up on a raft just yep. they hate that dude that's really probably my worst drinking experiences from my early <laughs> 20s um resulted in me throwing rocks at octopuses and then just waking up uh on a raft i hate that i literally hate that Same. they're like really what city am i going to this time let's do this so this is just what like a third into the movie oh yeah this is only like in the first 20 30 minutes <laughs> like the first act so this was needless to say this was when i realized this movie was going to be something completely different I think, and then, of course, we eventually get to that iconic first confrontation between Godzilla and King Kong. Godzilla wins. He had the high ground. <laughs> so, I just want, if you want to describe for our listeners what exactly happens in this epic first encounter. So, for this first encounter, it's probably about, what, midway through the movie? Yeah, midway right. through the midway right. through the movie. So Godzilla's just been, you know, fucking off in northern Japan, causing a ruckus, and Kong is now coming up southern side of Japan. And they meet in the middle of nowhere, just trees everywhere. Godzilla's got the high ground, so we automatically know he's gonna be winner. Well, Godzilla shows off by blowing up a helicopter with his atomic breath. Kong gets interested, throws a boulder at Godzilla, probably the start of boulders being, you know, the main weapon for the monsters in this franchise. And Godzilla lights him on fire, claps his hands in, you know, cheer for doing that, and fucks off. Kong, uh, right off. yeah, they just kind of fuck off. They, do, they don't even fight. They're just like, oh, Kong realizes he is totally undermatched and is just like, ah, I'm going to go do my own thing. It's so dopey. And, it, and it's funny, too, because I was initially, like, kind of frustrated with this movie because... I mean, you and I have talked about this, but I prefer usually a more serious tone with this sort of thing. 
at first kind of had a harsh reaction to this movie. I feel like I just was rejecting it because it was not what I wanted. But the more I think and the more I talk about this movie, the more I, I get it and the more I, I, I will say I have an appreciation, if maybe not quite a like for this movie, but I at least understand why people would like it. And I, I think that there's some people who may not ever get into a lot of these movies and maybe the kind of cheesiness is a little too much sometimes, but I think this movie welcomes you in if you have that thought process because it is so self-aware and so just unadulterated, just corniness oozing out its pores. So, I mean, it really, it, it makes you feel comfortable with laughing at it and you can tell it's fully intentional. Oh yeah. And with that being said, they struck gold with this because this was the highest grossing Godzilla film for a long time. I believe it's still the one that sold the most tickets and it was an international success thanks to the American cut as well. I was going to so ask that, you, was this a hit in America? Oh, this was a massive hit. That's why with this year's release of Godzilla vs. Kong, everyone's so excited because, let's be honest, the effects in the, the original don't hold up compared to like the rest of the franchise. So it's so nice that we get to see a new, revamped Godzilla and Kong fighting each other once again. I also feel like, in a way, I think it's one of those few remakes that feels warranted because it's not necessarily like trying to just remake what the other one was because what the other one was, was clearly a very goofy movie. Whereas this movie's trying to give us a cool fight. It's trying to give us a big epic fight. And I think that's something that we still haven't gotten and that's okay. You know, again, we'll get to the finale of this movie, but um, you know, which is special in its own right. Oh, but yeah. With, with this new one, it's definitely going for a different vibe. And I feel like that's more respectful. That's a more respectful approach than just trying to do what this movie already did. You know, it's kind of like, you know, trying to do a goofy parody of this movie would be like how Scary Movie felt when it came out when Scream was already a parody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's kind of like that, that sort of thing. So moving on to our next glorious moment... <laughs> is so i can't entirely if you want to help me out here with a little bit of what leads up to it because basically the the kong moments are probably the most memorable moments oh, I, oh uh, sorry to cut you off but no, that's okay. I do, go ahead oh god where was it in my notes so with the film obviously the monsters aren't together throughout most of it they're off doing their own stories so kong his story feels more the traditional kong you know Ape on the Loose in the big city, which he actually goes to Tokyo after the fight with Godzilla. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that was. Yeah, the little show-off on the hillside. Um, the military content. goes to deal with Godzilla, and then Kong is honestly kind of left on his own. The military doesn't mess with him until he kidnaps someone, because of course Kong kidnaps someone. Yeah, and this is actually the first time they start contradicting themselves with this franchise because in the original gojira godzilla was not affected at all by electricity and just powered through it now all of a sudden electrical wires they uh they hurt him so that's a (laughs) inconsistency right there and this is literally the third film in the franchise so good work you guys but uh we get some ridiculous cutaway shots of kong kind of just doing his own thing while godzilla's doing his own and there's 
my favorite shot, which was cut from the American cut, is Kong's just running through some small, you know, village area. He's kind of just like flailing his arms around, just kind of doing a Kong thing. And it's just doing his wacky dance. Yeah, and it's it's not even like a scene to set up another one. It's just cuts to him running and then cuts away back to the human stuff so just like what the hell it's fucking ridiculous and again watching this movie i was just constantly battling with how i felt about every choice it was making because it was so absurd and i'd kind of have that feeling of like nope i'm not gonna laugh not gonna appreciate it this is not the movie i wanted and then i'll stand (laughs) there for a second and i'll just kind of be like okay that was pretty funny that was yeah from there so when did they get to so this is kind of when they get to the city ish right yep so kong like i was saying finally gets to tokyo and they knock him out again with the berry juice so they uh, <laughs> give him more alcohol to get drunk to gotta yeah. love it he just keeps falling for that berry juice man oh yeah and um this vice so kenji sahara who is a mainstay in the godzilla franchise he is one of the leading actors he plays fujita his character was an inventor and creates this rope or string that is supposed to be super strong so after knocking out kong they decide to hey how about you know we wrap up kong airlift him to uh, mount fuji where godzilla just happens to be which also sets up Mount Fuji being the main badass area to fight monsters. Cause Which it should be said that this is one of the first of many, or this is the first of many ed- inventors that would conveniently make something oh, that yeah. would help them <laughs> to defeat a monster. Um, I also want to throw in that before they lift him off on the balloons, they do like a, I'm almost wondering if this was again, something intentionally satirical, they do kind of a like hokey version of like callback to the original King Kong where he's on top of a building holding someone. Except oh, yeah. this is on, on like a very short building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't climb. Um, he climbs the basically it's the I believe that is the diet building, which is more or less the Japanese, you know, Japan's version of our White House. It's yeah, their it looks like some form of, of capital yeah, building it's, it's their capital building um, don't quote it, me on this side no yeah. not 100 percent sure on it it was adorable though because it was this little stubby building as opposed to the the massive you know empire state uh, empire state <laughs> building set piece we get um and then last thing i wanted to mention before we get on to the incredible finale uh is i did look up the actor of the pharmaceuticals guy uh mr taco who is ichiro arashima uh, again if i pronounce that incorrectly i yeah. apologize this is on, the only godzilla film he was ever in which is well. a damn shame a damn shame yeah. he was the guy who got me on board with this the goofy tone of this movie he was the one who normally would get a smile out of me when i was trying to be as stone-faced as possible and not give in to this movie's ludicrousy but <laughs> he is he, he that man is absolutely incredible so feel free to continue so want to just skip right to the epic final fight at Mount Fuji? Let's get to the business because this is <laughs> this is one of the most insane. I think so when writing my notes, I think I wrote about, I don't know, probably like two maybe like a page and a half of the movie up till this point of notes uh in my phone and then probably about four pages just on this finale (laughs) there this oh boy where to even well first off it starts with king kong released from the balloons and sliding down mount fuji yep down the side of mount fuji and then just kind of cascading off of it 
directly into Godzilla feet first. Yep. And then basically going, oops, and then he runs away. And yep. it's a traditional trademark uh, stupid run. And then plays hide and seek with Godzilla <laughs> to yep. start off our first. Uh, and we have this adorable little, like, he plays Frodo under a rock, <laughs> hiding from Godzilla like he's a wraith. And then just the constant gestures and mannerisms. I mean, they really give them a lot of personality in this, which helps oh, yeah. the, the corniness of it. And then King um, Kong at some point proceeds to somersault and face plant into a boulder. Oh, to cut back a little into the fight. Um, yeah. uh, we do see Kong and Godzilla. Godzilla definitely uses his uh, atomic breath a few times to get the upper hand, but, uh, Kong is a real trooper and powers through it. And Kong is actually played by, I believe he was a professional wrestler or not, you know, professional, but he was, you know, new wrestling and martial arts, I believe. I want to um, say he was I a stu- Sorry, stunt actor. Sioichi mm-hmm. uh, Hirose, mm-hmm. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And he would actually later go on to perform as King Ghidorah in the following films but uh yeah he was the one who played kong and haru nakajima returned as godzilla yet again and this is the most entertaining fight between any of the suit actors ever it's absurd and i yeah i want to say that when you mentioned that he was a wrestler the actor who played king kong i want to say i read somewhere that this was kind of inspired by those big like wrestling matchups you know like the king kong versus godzilla was very much treated like this like headline kind of match you know which um is actually further cemented in the movie because mr taco even coins the title of the film he's like king kong versus godzilla yeah again pointing full self-awareness of oh yeah so i don't even know there's a there's a shot where there's a lot of like great taunting shots. Uh, oh yeah, there's a Godzilla's lot of... constantly clapping at his you know little victories like Kong you when he knocks himself. Clapping. At... There's also at times it looks like he's just wafting a fart in Kong's <laughs> general direction. He's kind of doing this like flapping of his arms near his groin area. It's very uncomfortable, but also hilarious. And Godzilla's real petty in this fight. Like he's just a real again just. Further cementing that he is the biggest dickhead of all time. Oh, yeah. Like, so Kong's knocked out because the dumbass went to go throw a rock and somehow threw himself in the process, rolled down the mountain, face planted, like you said. And so he's like laying unconscious. What's Godzilla do? I'm going to kick more rocks at him and then just start whipping him with my tail. Yeah, repeatedly. He just starts kicking the shit out of him. And just like, it's so, he just tail slaps the shit out of him. And then Kong gets up, and then Godzilla does it again. Like he knocks yep. him down, and then it's like, nah, yeah, he goes. Bitch, to Kong goes the way you know. Kong's like regaining consciousness, and yeah. like Godzilla's turned around, obviously, so he doesn't yeah. see this. And Kong goes to get up, and Godzilla just whacks him right in the face with his tail, and it's one of the most entertaining scenes. He's oh a mean God. bastard. Godzilla oh is my a God. mean bastard in this fight. And then, um, yeah, I literally I had to pause every ten seconds. To just try and comprehend what the fuck was happening. It was so much. Did not know how to... I ran out of thoughts. I ran out of like... I was just like, I'm 
speechless. <laughs> oh, yeah. So and then it's just like this, right after Kong wakes up from being unconscious, we cut to literally, I think it's the only time Godzilla is pure stop motion in the franchise that hasn't been deleted because I'll save that for a rainy day to talk nice. about. Cool. But yeah, uh, he does a stop motion drop kick on Kong, who now rolls further down the mountain. <laughs> oh, yeah. Electricity makes him stronger. I'm talking so about Kong. eventually we realized that lightning and electricity is apparently like spinach is to Popeye for King Kong. Oh, yeah. It's so strange. And it comes yep. out of fucking nowhere. And there's, yeah, there's no acknowledgement of this at all. Well, there's a scene earlier in the movie with the power lines that were shown to make Godzilla go, hey, I ain't going to touch these mm -hmm. anymore. Kong freaking eats those. Like, there's no setup in the why Kong eats them. He just he just eats them. And then he just continues on with his own little merry way. Yeah, he munches on electricity at one point, and then it becomes his, like, it just makes him Super Saiyan, apparently. And that's yep. where the fight slowly starts turning into King Kong's favor, where inarguably the greatest moment of this movie happens, where he rips a tree from the ground and <laughs> then proceeds to shove it down Godzilla's goddamn throat. Oh not, my god. This moment That's... was where I had to pause and contemplate a lot of things <laughs> about where I was in life, what was happening in this fucking movie. Uh yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> and the more I think about it, the more I love it. And it's so and... strange. It comes out of fuck again, another moment that just comes out of nowhere. Yep, uh, Godzilla had tail whipped Kong down to the ground, and Kong just looks over, grabs a tree, rips it out of the ground, and just fucking just right down Godzilla's throat. Yeah, and I... what's what's even better is Adam Wingard is heavily so he's the director of the new Godzilla vs Kong that's coming out this year, and he has been heavily on his social media teasing we're getting a return of this scene for his movie, and if that guy pulls through with it. The franchise is done. The, you can't top it anymore. So I remember, I remember hearing about that, and having not seen this movie and not really knowing what it was a reference to, but everyone was like hyping it up like, oh yeah, I want to see a tree down Godzilla's throat <laughs> in, the, in this new movie. And I was like, that's fucking stupid, guys. Why are we rooting for that? And then after seeing this movie, I'm like, yeah, I want to see King Kong find the biggest fucking California Redwood and just shove that bad boy right into Godzilla's mouth. Just, oh, I yeah. want it to come out his ass. <laughs> I I love that moment and it is so ridiculous. Uh, and then we, I, I really have to say, I feel like this fight kind of, not that the movie before it was bad, but it did sort of like elevate this movie. Like I was like, okay, yeah. I, I, I was like, I get what this movie's doing. It didn't really click with me for a very long time. And then by the time I got to the end of it, it was kind of like, okay, this, this fight was where it all made sense to me. And where I was oh, like, yeah. okay, people love this. Not for the reason I thought, but I'm okay with that. And I accept this for its place in the wacky Godzilla universe. And another great scene in this fight is now that they're back at the bottom of the mountain, Godzilla comes charging at Kong. What does Kong do? Shoulder flips the motherfucker. And I mean, this isn't an empty suit. Yeah. This is yeah. this suit has Haru Nakajima in it. So that right there, the suits, yeah. I think there are at most 200 pounds, plus however much Haru Nakajima weighs. Those boys tumble. They just yeah, tumble he, just, he just right over his shoulder. And it is the fact that it's all practical it just makes it look even better. It's wild. I do have to talk, speaking on the effects, King Kong looks fucking horrible. In this movie. Oh, there, there is a reason on that. 
All right, so with Kong suit design, the uh, RKO Studios, the people who made the original Kong and Son of Kong, told Toho not to use the likeness to create their own design, basically. So Toho more or less used monkeys from their region of you know the world and everything as inspiration. But oh boy, did it not! It, it did not pan out in the way. It looks like have. crap. It looks oh, yeah. bad. And honestly, oh. again, it's for what this movie is, it's okay. It's no. definitely part of the charm of the movie, but yeah. oh boy. If, I mean, Toho retained the license for, I want to say, another five, six years after this movie. And they made one more Kong feature, King Kong Escapes, which we will cover in uh, later down the line. But that suit is just a slight, slight, slight improvement. <laughs> Still looks like trash. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, the suit design for Kong is just bad. And I felt so bad for, uh, God, what's his name again? I can never remember the actor's name. Oh, Hirose. I feel bad for him because unlike Nakajima, who was literally zipped into a suit, they had to sew the Kong suit together. Don't know why, but the suit actually caught fire at one point with him trapped in it. So Wait, for oh, yeah. who? Hirose. The Kong suit Jeez. caught fire at one point. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know when exactly, but it happened. Unreal. Yeah, I think needless to say, all the weirdness of this movie really just kind of eventually synergizes. And at a certain point, it feels like you know what they're doing. And if you can get on board with that, like people who love these kinds of things, I feel like this was kind of, uh, you know, we live in like the Sharknado era where like people love making stupid movies to make stupid movies. And this kind of feels oh, like yeah. that, but a little smarter in that sense of just like, we're just going to have fun and be goofy and uh, basically make a live King Kong blimp of him floating around on balloons. <laughs> and yep. yeah, it's a really, uh, the, the tagline for this movie should have been, why the fuck not? Another great little thing to keep in line with its anti-capitalism and satire of Japan at the time is the final showdown of the fight and everything. So just like you've been stating that Godzilla's a dick, of course they couldn't just you know end the fight normally. They had to find a building to smash in order to end the fight. Always. And that pagoda they did destroy isn't like a landmark of Japan. No, it was a tourist trap built only three years before the movie came out. So that was kind of another slap in the face to you know tourist traps and capitalism and everything. And what sparked the biggest controversy of the series was two endings. An ending where Kong lives and an ending where Godzilla lives. But that is completely and utter bullshit. From the end of the Japanese and the end of the American, Kong wins both times. Yeah, how, did that, no- how did that start? Why is that a thing? I want to say it's because at the end, right before the credits roll, you hear Godzilla's roar one last time. Mm. So people are like, oh, Godzilla won. And so that must have been... Because what sucks is this got published in real things. There's a children's book all about the movies that mentions it. It's in Trivia Pursuit. <laughs> wow, so, really? Like, it is, it has obviously been confirmed not to have happened. It is one ending. But that is something that has plagued this franchise forever. And even Wingard has said in Godzilla vs. Kong, there's going to be a definite victor. Mm-hmm. It's either Kong or Godzilla, which Team Godzilla all the way. I guess with me, it didn't mind because I think, or I didn't mind. I I think it would have been, if it was a more serious movie, I would have cared about who the victor was, but like, it's such a dick around movie that it's, it's just, it's so fitting that it ends with an ending that you're kind of just leaves you going, what? <laughs> because yep. the whole movie leaves you going, 
what? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, definitely interesting stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we, uh, we ready to move on to the next one? Oh, yeah. Let's move on to definitely one of the highest high points in the franchise, Mothra versus Godzilla. When Mothra's egg washes ashore in Japan following a typhoon, a greedy businessman, Kumayama, and Jiro Torahada claim it as their own property and exploit it for revenue. To make matters worse, Godzilla reemerges and begins rampaging across Japan, making his way straight for the egg. It's up to Ichiro Sakai, Junko, and <laughs> Shunsei Miyara. We apologize mm. just in general. For oh, I'm butchering the names. Big We're time. trying. We're really trying. We both watch a lot of Japanese film, and it, it's we try. But we it's, try. It's hard to travel to Infant Island and plead with the dying Mothra to return to Japan and battle Godzilla to save both her offspring and the millions of innocent people threatened by Godzilla's rampage. So with this film, we have actually sparked the start of the Godzilla cinematic universe. This is a direct sequel to not only the past three Godzilla movies, but a little film called Mothra from 1961. So it's really cool to see what basically is some of the starts of a cinematic universe before Marvel came and slapped everyone in the face with it. Yeah, it's it's really, really cool seeing this happen years before. And I, I can't sing this praises, you know, my praise for this film enough. This is truly one of the best Godzilla movies out there. And just like the past three, Godzilla is still the villain. He is still the antagonist. Still a dickhead. Much more of a dickhead because he's going after Mothra's babies. <laughs> Maximum dickhead. Yep. And uh, Haru Nakajima returns once again to perform as Godzilla. Going back and looking at it, this is my favorite suit design from the Showa era. It's a good one. And I, I don't really... It's funny because the suit design of a lot of these I was not a fan of. But then I remember oh, yeah. particularly... I don't remember the specific suit design of this off the top of my head. But I remembered not ever thinking wow that looks doofy as fuck like i do in most of these movies oh yeah so i was pretty i i was like oh well it must have actually probably been a pretty good suit and then i went back yeah. and looked at it and i was like it's a pretty it's not a bad suit yeah it's one of my favorite suit designs it's got the most pronounced eyebrows and it's just got one of the most menacing looking faces especially they do a lot of like face shots of godzilla in this yeah and he just looks terrifying in some yeah. of them <laughs> So what were your overall thoughts kind of already on this movie? And then how did you feel after watching it? So like most of the Godzilla movies, I've only grown up on the English cut. And mm. thankfully we get, you know, with the Criterion and classic media back in the earlier days, released the Japanese cut, which I never really sat around to watch for some reason. But <laughs> um, when we did this watch along, this was my first time really sitting down to watch the Japanese one. And it, it's honestly one of my favorite stories. The third act I will get into a little later, but it, it was a little weak compared to the rest of it. But it's one of the most compelling human stories, and it still deals with, you know, nuclear fear, which is something mm -hmm. the later franchise kind of just forgets about after these first batch of films. This was where it really clicked with me uh, as to why this franchise is so popular, because this one managed to kind of, with how, what I was saying earlier when we were talking about King Kong, is where it felt like they were just kind of trying everything. This felt like they had realized the things that had worked in each of the previous movies and sort of melded those all together that kind of created something really fresh and new. 
you have a little bit of cheesiness of like King Kong versus Godzilla. You have a little bit of the, you know, you have the focus on monster set pieces like you do in, you know, Raids Again. And then you still have some of that, like those allegories and kind of the ecological and environmental, you know, viewpoints are still very much prominent here. And one thing that's very prominent in this movie that continued from Mothra is very much pro-environment, screw big corporations, which is a mainstay for the rest of the Mothra films that um, she's like rock. the head. Mothra's pretty punk rock. Yeah, she's, it's one of the mainstays of her main films, not just, you know, one she guest appears in. But uh, the human villains in this are greedy corporate businessmen who want to exploit Mothra's egg for profit Mm-hmm. and oh, it's just so good. One of my favorite things that they actually carried over from the first Mothra movie is her island is located in the South Pacific where a lot of nuclear testing was done, and sadly, in the first one, her island got hit with a bomb. wasn't fully irradiated, but it's been damaged nonetheless. We cut to only three years later in this one, and the island is decimated. There's no vegetation. Looks um, like the uh, elephant graveyard from The Lion King. Oh, yeah. It's just <laughs> depressing. And it also leads into one of the best songs in the franchise, The Sacred Springs. Well, yeah. Let's let's dial it back a little bit and talk about that. So, well, first off, overall, I mean, yeah, I loved this one. This was the biggest, probably the biggest surprise for me of these movies and this was one i watched with leah too and and we were both kind of just like this movie sneaks up on you because you get you start off it's like this kind of like uh you know it kind of feels like james and the giant peach when like the giant peach shows up and they're like trying to you know make profit off it and have people come see it and it becomes this big like tourist attraction with mothra's egg you know and i was like okay this is kind of a cool angle but like you know I get what they're saying with, you know, the capitalist angle and all that. And it was really interesting, but I was kind of like, where is this going to connect with like an emotional story? And man, once they get to infant Island, it's just incredible. And yeah, this whole thing's kind of set off by the egg is sought out by the two kind of guardian twin fairies, the Shobi Jin, thank you, that are these little singing ladies and this was a moment this is a perfect example of an element that if not played straight or if not played like that perfect balance of like let's accept how wacky this is but also try and go for something else something bigger with it this is an element that really may not have worked but the fact that you know they have these beautiful songs that they're singing and there are like these uh you know they're they're the symbol of like this kind of desperate plea to just kind of leave nature alone and just stop trying to make profit off of it it's pretty beautiful and it it really shocked me and kind of surprised me but yeah yeah go ahead i just wanted to put in my two cents yeah and um the showbiz genre actually played by at the time pop idols known as the peanuts emmy and yumi i believe were their names and they actually played the uh, fairies for for mothra mothra versus godzilla and its sequel Ghidorah, the three-headed monster I honestly believe this is probably the perfect blend of fantasy and the sci-fi-ness of the Godzilla franchise. I thought this was an excellent just combining of the two genres. While also and, being very human, too, and being yeah. pretty grounded for how insane everything that's actually happening on screen is. They never forget to kind of remind you that this is, you know, these are human elements. These are human stories that or things we're struggling with, you know, human themes, I should say. And I, th- I think this also has the strongest human characters 
uh, as, oh, yeah. as, up, as up to this point. Definitely. We get returns from Akira Takarada, who is in, I believe I marked it down in six films in the franchise. Wow. From all, he's in all three of the major eras as well. I believe he's retired from acting, so I don't think, you know, guy's in his 80s, so I wouldn't blame him if he was. I would um, say that's a good time to call it. We also get returns of Kenji Sahara, who is another mainstay. I believe he's in literally 13 of these. Wow. So, like just yeah, Showa he, or just like Godzilla in general? In general. He's another one of the actors who was in all three of, at the time, generations of Godzilla films. Cool. Yeah, so like the harken back to when I was saying uh, the fantasy and everything, this is the first time we see telepathy used in the franchise, which is something that gets used further down. Mm-hmm. So when Legendary got the rights to use Mothra and King of the Monsters, Michael Dodery talked about the concept of Mothra being the symbol of life, death, and rebirth. Having rewatched this movie, they actually bring that up. And it's, I was just like, whoa, I thought that was just, you know, kind of Dodery bringing his own concept to Mothra. But yeah. I wish I wrote down the timestamp, but I got the quote that Mothra never truly dies. Life will be born from her egg. Okay. So yeah. bringing on the cycle of life and death, that Mothra's never truly gone. She will always be reborn, kind of like and, a phoenix. And big, big spoiler warning here Mothra does die about halfway through. Yeah. Or maybe a little more than halfway through, probably. Yeah, and it's actually really realistic. You would, I mean, she's honestly just a giant butterfly, but she only takes two or three hits from Godzilla's atomic breath before she's conked out. She's the first one in this series where I just was like, wow, just completely wowed by. I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous looking and so cool. And yeah, when she, in the scene when she dies, I mean, you the fight between her and Godzilla is amazing because what's so cool about it is that they really don't try and, you know, stretch it too much. They're like, no, this is a big, strong lizard man versus a beautiful, somewhat, you know, delicate creature that does, that has to use its ingenuity to kind of help level herself up, put herself on Godzilla's level um, during the fight. So she's more creative and witty, whereas he's just kind of brute force. And that was, an, again, another really cool, just kind of thematic element to play with there, just kind of the juxtaposition of those two things. And she's dying on the egg and just breathe, like you can see her breathing, like her, like heaving. And when you know her, her that she's dying, it's just like weirdly beautiful moment. I was, I was so caught off guard by that whole scene. Uh, and it's so, so well done. And then, of course, you know, around that point, the eggs hatch and we get into the aforementioned third act. Yeah, which actually right before the third act, Godzilla, for some reason, I don't know why they wrote this story like this. He just kind of fucks off. He gives up on the <laughs> egg and kind of just goes off and does his own thing, which is weird. But, A, it led to one of the coolest scenes in the movie where the pyrotechnics for all the explosions mm-hmm. messed up and lit the Godzilla suit on fire and it created one of the coolest shots. So it's nighttime. So you kind of just see like him roaring and there's like fire all over his neck and head. And it's honestly one of the coolest scenes. I want to say I read that somewhere too. That was cool. Yeah. Also around this point in the film, we have the unexpected death out of the two greedy villain characters. Oh my God. Yeah. And And it's, they don't hold back. Oh, it's kind of violent. Yeah, it is. And it's cool how they just kind of pretty much destroy each other. And it kind of is symbolic of like that self-destructive nature of capitalism. Um, I, I, for my notes, I literally wrote greed kills all dot, dot, dot. (laughs) 
and Godzilla 2. Yeah, so what had they're, happened they're in fighting that scene, over... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so what had happened was the one who's kind of in charge of keeping the egg contained and everything right. turns up to, I believe it was Kenji Sahara's character, who was basically the money guy. He was the one paying it, you know, making sure things happen. And he hasn't been paying in a while, so... Kumiyuma, I believe, shows up to his hotel. And he's like, yo, you got to pay me for everything on this. And he's like, oh, what? The thing's been destroyed. I ain't paying you anything. So they get in a fight, bloody fist fight, nonetheless, yep. ending with one of them, uh, Kumiyuma. Sorry, I'm butchering that. He gets shot by Kenji Sahara's character, which actually this brings up a really great shot. So during that fist fight, Kenji Sahara gets knocked out a bit. And the camera, like, slowly, you know, regains focus as he's supposed to be coming back, too. And he sees Godzilla coming in the distance. That's and so that good. was honestly one of the best shots in the entire franchise right yeah, there. I, I really loved that moment. And, yeah, again, that was where I, I feel like this this movie really balances that line well of, like, you know, it's not afraid to show these characters as these big, broad, evil. But they were still believable, you know? They weren't, like... Oh, very. They weren't necessarily caricatures in any way, shape, or form. They were... They felt, like, real greedy businessmen you know not at all relevant to things going on in america and it was yeah it, it was cool to see that scene kind of see these characters taken so seriously and taken you know their demise wasn't some goofy like oh good riddance for those fucking guys they're gone it was a very like intense moment and it made sure the director made a point to show you that that was important <laughs> you know oh, that, yeah. that, that was a highlight uh so it was really cool it's good stuff um so what are your thoughts on where the movie goes after that. So this is where I feel the movie, they kind of ran out of steam. They didn't really know how to end it. And they kind of shoehorn in this. So Godzilla's continuously on his little rampage while Mothra's egg hasn't hatched yet. So he's off doing his own thing right now and starts heading towards a island right off the coast of Japan. All of a sudden, our heroes now have to go to that island to save some school kids who are on a field trip out there. And then the Mothra eggs hatch and they pursue after Godzilla and it's kind of weak after how good of a story it's been it kind of just peters out I mean it fight between the Mothra larvae and Godzilla is well done but to me it's the weakest part of the story so I for one I I've read that people feel that way and and I understand it for me I think because of that theme of like rebirth and sort of like all these things coming around, I feel and going full circle, I feel like the ending was pretty satisfactory for me. I actually felt this tension of like, it, it is this very long drawn out scene where the larvae are kind of both shooting their webs at him. But honestly, I kind of loved how long it took them because it felt like they were really kind of like that defeating Godzilla was climbing this mountain, especially for these two babies. But the fact that they were like working together and there was this cool sort of, I just loved the underdog element. And I love how they were kind of peeking behind rocks and again, like using the wit and ingenuity that their mother would have to stop Godzilla just felt really right for me. And, and the music I think did a really good job of building it up and building it up and building it up oh. to the point where Godzilla finally falls off. And I thought it was pretty great. I actually really, I thought that the ending was pretty satisfactory. I do think the whole school children that they needed to save was just a way to shoehorn the humans in yeah. to the finale. 100%. I feel like it worked for me. Overall. Yeah. Um, I have in my notes that this was honestly my favorite soundtrack of the Showa era. Absolutely. So far. Absolutely. Oh, Akira Fukube just knocked it out of the water. And this is actually, I believe this was 
the first one that we really started to get to hear the elements that would become Godzilla's traditional theme song. Yep. Um, which was really cool. Yeah. I am not afraid to admit that I may or may not have come close to tears multiple moments in this movie. <laughs> it's just a testament to show how, yeah, the, the music, especially the, every time oh. there was like a song, I pretty much just almost turned into a baby and just, sacred springs i will forever love that song especially not the one that appears in the movie but the actual official soundtrack one where it's the full song it ends with cellos and violins and trumpets and everything and it is is the song where it reveals like the oasis part yes yes that is the sacred spring oh my god that whole because even in the i haven't heard i haven't heard the full version but even in the movie it it's i was like yeah, it's a showstopper. It's really like a wow I think, moment. I think the movie version just cuts after the, um, the show Bijan are done singing, but the rest of it is like another minute of just instrumental. And just like the prayer for peace from the original Gojira, it just, it hits you. Yeah, I... Um... I loved it. I loved all the music. Like I said, like the ending was really like this really hype up ending of like them taking down Godzilla and love how they're like using guerrilla warfare. And I was basically cheering in my living room. Leah and I were both like practically out of our seats, just like pumped to see Godzilla's ass go down. (laughs) And yeah, it's, I think it's the most interactive I had been up to this point with one of the movies and just like, it really, it just had this energy about it. And it's just sometimes you watch a movie and you have this feeling of like, wow, this is special. And that this movie really felt that way for me. I really, really enjoyed and, it. And oh, it is truly one of the best of the franchise. I, I think- forgot how good it was. And this rewatch just cemented it as my favorite. Still holds up and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, Another thing I want to mention before we head on to the next one, too, is the actual hatching of the egg. It's yep. so cool. It's so, oh my it's like god, a, that is such a cool effect. It's like a neon art fest. I don't even know how to describe it. It was just so fucking cool. Uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely, and the effects in general, just like not just the um, actual suits themselves and the puppetry of Mothra, but like just everything that they did was really, really impressive and really aged pretty well. One thing I never realized until literally this rewatch was. Something that always confused me is how did Mothra lay such a big egg? Because the egg is literally <laughs> double the size of her body. So uh, younger me was always like, how does she do that? Well, rewatching it and reading the subtitles along with it, they actually legit mention that the egg did grow as it been hatched. So yeah. it grew. Yeah, I remember and that. I, never re- I was like, oh my God, that blew my friggin' mind when I saw that. <laughs> well, I feel like it just goes to show that there wasn't attention to detail. You know, if they were going to include these fantastical elements in it, they also wanted to make it grounded. And I feel like accounting for things like that is just, just an example of that. But yeah, really, really great one. And definitely, oh my God. it starts off kind of, I think we can both agree, like kind of a, a good rhythm of the next couple movies. Oh, yeah. So, Speaking of it, do you want to introduce us to the next one? All right. So next up is Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. So following a meteor impact in Japan's Kurobe Valley, a prophetess claiming to be from Venus appears and warns of great calamities to befall the Earth. Her predictions come true as Rodan resurfaces from Mount Aso and Godzilla comes ashore once again in Japan. While the two monsters battle, the evil King Ghidorah emerges from the meteorite and begins obliterating everything in his path. Now the only way to save the world from destruction lies in the larval Mothra, 
convincing Godzilla and Rodan to join forces with her. Only then can the Earth monsters stand a chance against the extraterrestrial evil threatening their planet. So this one was interesting because I would say it was a pretty similar experience to Mothra. This was kind of where it started to feel like a consistent franchise and not just like, let's try something different every movie. This was where it really started to get a rhythm. And you could feel that. You could feel they picked a lot of what worked about Mothra and put it into this one. You have a lot of the same actors. You have a lot of just a similar vibe where it's a story that's focused. They have some sci-fi and fantastical elements, but they also do a good job of kind of weaving them into a human story too. I would say that the human story or kind of the, at least the princess from Venus story, it doesn't tie in as seamlessly with Ghidorah with the story of his arrival. However, I will say this was another one. I was so surprised at how good the monster looked right away, like in his introduction. Like Ghidorah looks, the fact that this is how he starts, I was like, how does he look better later on? Like, how did they improve suits later? Because it's like he's so good already right off the bat. He's a, I don't know if we've described it yet, but he's a basically a three headed dragon with these huge wings and he's golden and he's absolutely fucking amazing. And the puppetry work of allowing all the heads to kind of move in different rhythms as they go. This was probably one of my favorite technically. I would say overall I wasn't as emotionally invested in this one as I was Mothra, but it had a lot of great elements, a lot of same elements that I liked from Mothra more or less. But I would say the actions just kicked up another notch and the set pieces are kicked up another notch and the effects are absolutely just mind blowing. So what are your thoughts? Like you said, I I didn't like the human story as much in this one. I loved like the crime aspect. I loved the like the plot that it has. But like you said, it didn't fuse well enough into the main story. They could have maybe one more rewrite would have helped combine the two stories. But yeah, the monster stuff. This is the first time Godzilla becomes the hero as well. Mm-hmm. He starts off as a villain or anti-hero, whatever you want to go with at this point, and he sure. becomes more heroic and this is the first time we really see the monsters get personalities this is when they start humanizing them and this is also the start of the furthering of the cinematic universe because rodan was introduced in his own film which was actually toho's first colored kaiju flick back in 1956 cool yeah and one thing that was really cool is the way he got introduced coming from a volcano is something Michael Dodery kept for his version of Rodan in King of the Monsters. But yeah, Ghidorah just looks amazing in this. I can't speak highly of how cool Ghidorah is. He is truly one of the best monster designs ever. He is, and I feel in a way it's a little unfair to Rodan because (laughs) Rodan (laughs) is cool in his own right. He's essentially a giant bird. Pterodactyl. Yeah, birdodactyl. And uh, he's... He looks cool. It's just, unfortunately, you have this, like, you know, uh, it's like, oh, cool. He has a big pair of wings and he can fly around. And it's like, well, Ghidorah can do that shit and shoot lightning out of his three heads. So, yep. which is, is fitting because the whole concept is that, you know, this is kind of a, this one's kind of like the, the first Avengers movie of this, right? Like, it's kind of yeah. like the, the teaming up of these characters. Uh, Rodan's like the Hulk, right? Where we're bringing him in in that movie and then you have like you know godzilla and mothra are like our captain america and iron man who like kind of forced to sort of align even though they have totally different 
outlooks and views. And so you kind of have this, you really do have this formation of this and they do a pretty good job of justifying it and making it feel big and feel important to the franchise. I can only assume that the franchise was doing well at this point, right? Oh yes. Yes. Is it, yeah. I mean, and you um, can feel it. You can feel that they're on that high of kind of like really and- hitting a stride with the series. What's amazing is both Mothra and Ghidorah came out the same year. Oh, really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, they, I can't believe the turnover. Like, reading some of the release dates, I couldn't believe it. Like, we're still, I mean, we're, what, this is our fifth film in, and we're only 10 years out of the first one? It's crazy. Absolutely Yeah, crazy. and something that's interesting is, unlike Marvel, this is only one of two times a Godzilla movie got released twice in one year. Wow. Um, this wouldn't happen again until 2018 with the two anime films because they were trying to get those mm-hmm. out before Legendary continued with sense. their franchise. Yeah. But yeah, I think I actually even liked the Venus Princess stuff too. I just feel like I, it didn't really blend seamlessly with the Ghidorah stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, like I said, if it had just like one more rewrite, that would have been perfect. Absolutely. I think uh, one of the funniest, you know, talking about this, them kind of giving them personalities in this one, I think the highlight is Mothra basically slapping Godzilla and Rodan upside the head when they're fighting amongst each other to to get their shit together and go fight Ghidorah. It's probably one of the most iconic moments in this first chunk of movies. It's just so great. It's so great. Oh, yeah. The fight between Godzilla and Rodan before Mothra shows up is honestly probably one of my favorite fights just because of how ridiculous it is. Like, Rodan's yanking on Godzilla's tail. Godzilla's blasting him with his atomic breath. Rodan picks up Godzilla and drops him a couple times. It's just like... It was a little, I, I wasn't super invested in those two fighting. I think it was fine, but I was really excited for the main event that they were hyping up. Oh, yeah. Which I think they definitely deliver on once it finally gets there. It is such a good fight. Like, I love seeing, you know, Rodan carrying Mothra so she can cocoon Ghidorah. Godzilla throwing rocks, anything he can get his hands on at Ghidorah. And it really does kind of cement, yeah, like you said, like they're kind of who these creatures it it makes them more than just creatures like they're definitely more characters now and you yeah. get that like i i think it was pretty impressive how you know mothra is really like the strongest female character in these movies <laughs> and she's oh, yeah. really the one that on so many occasions has to get people's shit together it's important to mention too that the mothra in this film is one of the, the larvae from- grown up from the last movie. Yeah, it's the, it's the baby from... Um, sadly, for some reason, they couldn't use both puppets of Mothra, so they just said one of them died off screen. Yeah, which I was wondering after, about that. After watching Mothra versus Godzilla right before this, my money's on the one Godzilla was tail whipping around. Probably. I would guess that her little moth brands weren't feeling too good after getting whipped around like that. Probably took some long-term damage. Probably and this is one of the only it. Godzilla films that actually has direct continuity before we get into the later franchise where that gets more established. But they do reference that Mothra did defeat Godzilla. Yeah, and there's, so a, there's a carryover human character for the first time, too. Yep, played by Hiroshi Koizumi, returns as the doctor he played in Mothra vs. Godzilla. He's a little more underutilized in this one, but it was nice to see a returning cast member. Yeah, and, and it was kind of just nice because... 
it's just a, this is a very comfortable nook of Godzilla films, right? Like oh, this, yes. this is a very like this is the sweet spot. This is like what Godzilla fans talk about is these two films, what they were in, and then you know eventually we'll talk about it. But the next one kind of follows suit with that too to some degree. And I think it's just yeah, it's a mix of both kind of that silly but also really heartfelt thing that Ashiro's like that combination that Ashiro Honda's really good at. Yeah, this is the big four. Mm-hmm. This is them definitely at their peak. Subaraya was mastering his effects. Like Ghidorah's gravity beams that he uses, to have those all line up with the explosions they set up on the practical sets and having, you know, digitally colored in and everything just blows my mind at how well they were able to do that. This is 1964, way before CG is even a thing. You know what I had to keep doing throughout this movie is remembering this is before Star Wars. This is way pre-Star Wars, like 12 years or something like that before Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars, what, late late 70s, right? Yep, 77. (laughs) So it's really impressive to kind of see, like... The, when you look at these effects, you know, uh, obviously there's there's holes here and there, but they're more fluid than you'd expect. And I was really impressed by how the lightning looked that Ghidorah was shooting, because usually those are the effects, those like painted in effects, you're usually kind of like, you cringe when you see it, but they do this really cool like effect. I, and I think in the next movie too, of like Ghidorah's lightning kind of tracks as they set off these little explosions. Yeah, which, yeah, I and, love that. And it seems so natural like it seems so it really helps blend those realistic with the artificial elements and i think this movie does it as good as any in the series oh my god it's so subaraya was way ahead of his game for when it comes to practical effects yeah they make sure as always to use them in both badass and goofy ways like godzilla just getting shot right in the ass by oh yeah and in the dick (laughs) when he gets shot in the dick too yeah yeah, I should I should know. Yep. Classic. Um, but yeah, it's hard cuz I don't I don't really have a ton to say about this one cuz it felt very much like this. It felt so consistent with Mothra that a lot of what I have to say about it is kind of the same. Like they just they feel like a whole and they really I would say the next one has a little more differences than these two so so that one I have a little more to say about but with this one in particular it really felt like just this great kind of higher on at this point in the series where it just it really works all right uh want me to bring on the next one let's do it I know you're looking forward to it all right no spoilers here but this is one of my favorites as well Invasion of Astro Monster. When astronauts Fuji and Glenn visit newly discovered Planet X. Wait, Josh, they encounter- can, you, can you? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Can you dial that back? And astronauts who? Fuji and Glenn. Okay, I just want to point out one of the more jarring aspects of this movie. <laughs> they encounter the planet's intelligent inhabitants, the Exilians. The Exilians are constantly under attack by King Ghidorah, who is known as Monster Zero. The controller of Planet X asks to borrow Godzilla and Rodan in the hope they can once again repel King Ghidorah. The people of Earth comply, but not all is as it seems when the Exilians issue an ultimatum demanding Earth's surrender and threatening to unleash all three monsters on Earth under their mind control. Glenn and Fuji must find themselves in a race against time to find a way to sever the Exilian's control over the monsters before the Earth falls to Planet X. Yeah, this is probably my favorite of all, like, the sci-fi heavy Godzilla films. This one oozes 1960s classic, like, Star Trek 
style space adventures and it's one of the only godzilla movies to have in a u.s production team behind it as well hence why we get an american in this movie played by nick adams oakland he is oozes <laughs> that classic american charm Again, apologies for the interruption earlier, but just want to point out how funny astronauts Fuji and Glenn, <laughs> because it just, after a series of like very consistently just Japanese actors, this was definitely a, an aspect that threw me off a little bit about it, but I'll, oh, I'll yeah. let you fi- finish your thoughts first. This is like, to me, this is peak Godzilla right here. As much as I loved Ghidorah, this is what I always like envision when I think of a King Ghidorah story. This is the first time alien invasions are brought into the franchise, which sadly after this one aren't nearly as good. And this is also the first time the Exilians are used as the alien race, which is mm-hmm. cool that they actually continuously get reused throughout the franchise. But yeah, this is one of the times I actually kind of preferred the human story over the monsters. I loved the uh, chemistry between Akira Takarada, who plays astronaut Fuji, Mm -hmm. and Nick Adams as Glenn. Which, one thing that's bizarre that when Nick Adams was filmed on set, he Mm -hmm. spoke all his lines in English while everyone continued in Japanese. And boy, can you tell. Yeah. It's very apparent, and it's really jarring. (laughs) I don't mean to continuously get hung up on that element. I think the reason it stands out so much to me is because it definitely felt like a marketing attempt or some sort of like, it definitely felt like a gimmick and it was really hard because yeah, in the, in those first 10 minutes, it's probably the worst because eventually your brain kind of sinks to it and you just get over it. But in those first 10 minutes, I mean, you're watching a Japanese actor look to his left and just speak Japanese. And then you see a American actor look to his right and just speak what is clearly English. And then someone else's voice speaking Japanese over it. Yeah, someone dubbed him over in Japanese. And all you can get from him since he's being dubbed is these winks and like facial expressions. They're really these really broad, like 50s, 60s Hollywood guy facial expressions that you're like, this James Dean motherfucker is just trying to shoehorn his way into Godzilla. And boy, do I not know if it's working. (laughs) This is one of the very few Godzilla movies where the dub is almost just as good as the original. Wow, Um, really? Yeah. So I call this the turning trilogy. Because it starts off with Mothra and ends with Invasion, where Godzilla was the villain and ends up being the hero. Yep. This set of three films, not only are they the ones I grew up the most on, but also they were the ones that got the most respect when they got brought over to the States. I think at most five minutes got cut from like each one, maybe ten at the most. Wow. Um, so it was very little like interfering. Um, the dubbing was actually done pretty well for being in the 1960s. So I grew up on the English cut of Invasion, which was known as Monster Zero. Yeah. Yeah, so seeing, even in a dubbed version, Glenn and Fuji, for some reason, the chemistry worked. And apparently, Ishiro Honda and everyone on set loved working with Nick Adams, because this wasn't his only film. He did uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World, which had a couple carryover actors from this one into Mm. that as well, along with, I believe, Akira Fukube returned to score that. And not to go on a tangent, but yeah, it was a lot of returning people. And he cared about the franchise too. And so it was nice to see that. 
we had had this discussion because we've heard for the most part with this podcast, we've been trying to save most of our conversations for the podcast. But one conversation we did have before was that you had explained to me that Nick Adams was very well respected amongst Toho and its fans and that it was a very, you know, as I watched it, like I said, I kind of synced up to it and I, I got, I became okay with it over time. And um, he is likable in that sort of cheesy Hollywood way. And I just wish I got a little more of his performance, you know, because I do feel like watching the Japanese version, you only get half a performance out of him, right? Because you don't get to hear. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, so. that's why a lot of people really like the dub version as well, because not only do you get the full Nick Adams performance of it, but it's also a very well done dub as well. Yeah, which is cool. And so is it his actual, they actually yep. use his voice in that one. So I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of one of the, where the dub is somewhat you know pieces of it are somewhat so organic or more organic yeah. and he's such a like pivotal part of that movie this uh introduced kumi mizuno to the godzilla franchise which she would go on to have bit parts here and there throughout some of the 60s and 70s and then returns later in the millennium era but she plays miss namikawa which is basically this version of a femme fatale character which has probably the weakest part of the story is her romance with nick adams character I kind of wish either they would have gone further with it or not had it at all. <laughs> but apparently there was a rumor going around that those two slept together in real life. Ooh, that is salacious. Because yeah. uh, what's interesting is both of them, I believe, were Salty. married at the time. Oh, snap. Nick yep. Adams and dog. Yeah, and apparently, according to Nick Adams' daughter, that was the reason her parents got divorced. <laughs> I believe it was his daughter who said that. And resist yep. the alien ladies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This movie's interesting because it, it has those elements of that, like, th- this is kind of the one where if the two before this kind of rode that line perfectly between heartfelt and campy, this one was where it started to tilt a little bit more towards campy over the last two. Uh, there's a couple definitive moments that decide well, this that. Is, this was very pulpy, you know, 1950s, you know, novella pulp fiction style yeah i mean it's got sort of like a like buck rogers like old, old yeah school. i was about to say that yeah like those i was actually pretty impressed though that like i think this was made like before 2001 a space odyssey and a couple this was uh 1965 so whenever space odyssey came. 68 so yeah this was pre that and it's pretty impressive because some of the like the shots of like the white like monochromatic alien structures and the guys in red suits walking around them kind of reminded me a lot of that. So I thought that was pretty impressive and sci-fi elements were less jarring than I think I expected. I think I was a little, um, the more campy stuff kind of came with more of the dialogue and stuff like that, but the actual sci-fi elements alone were pretty cool. I liked them. I do think it was really funny when there's a moment earlier that I wanted to call out that earlier on in the film where they're in the alien conference room completely unfazed by the way that's a theme with these movies is just oh yeah yeah these yeah human characters being in these ridiculous situations and they're like that's another tuesday i'm just in some aliens conference room you know and at one point i think they say something along the lines of isn't this just like international meetings and i'm like no it's fucking not <laughs> the stakes are way higher <laughs> so i thought that was pretty great and again kind of like this movie just acknowledging its absurdity at times I think is really good. It does see. Feel... I missed that line of dialogue. I, I wasn't. 
yeah I, I yeah that. it's like early on it's when they're sitting down uh and the aliens are kind of they're having their first like little negotiation or whatever it is with the yeah. aliens can we also talk about the fact that they both had guns when they landed on planet x yeah i just love that like we're scientists but we have our guns bitch they gotta have guns they gotta have guns like this was kind of a point where like it was something there was something cool about scientists like there was like a cool scientist phase you know we were also creeping up on like the bond era where like villains would be scientists and stuff like that so you kind of had this like blending of like science and action for some reason but yeah um and then of course we get the whole because essentially the plot correct me if i'm wrong it's i don't remember too much but they're basically convinced the humans to get Rodan and Godzilla for them to help yep. them fight Ghidorah. And <laughs> this is where we get not only a pretty cool fight. So I love the, the set piece. Is it an asteroid they're on or something? Nope. Planet X. This is the only oh, time right, right. Godzilla's ever fought anyone outside of Earth. Like, okay. on a different planet. And so, post that fight, you already know where I'm going with this. Oh, hell yeah. We get one of the greatest moments where they make Ghidorah retreat. And to celebrate Godzilla... It, you know, as opposed to doing the traditional celebratory roar into the air, does a form of bouncing river dance where <laughs> he sort of, I don't know how else to describe it, as he rhythmically like shrills at the top of his lungs and he just kind of goes, rah, rah. And that's pretty much like, I look like Jack Black doing that, but that's, that's kind of essentially what it looks like. Is it's like, I imagine Jack Black was in that suit at that time. And honestly, this- I think I remember seeing it somewhere that Nakajima was really for it, but um, Honda wasn't. I mean, well, he's just the director of the movie, so suck it up, Buttercup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the man in the suit, and I'm going to fucking river dance if I want to river dance. This Uh, is also the first time Haru really animates the Godzilla fights. Like, you see him, like, bobbing and weaving and, like, bouncing on his feet. It's hilarious. I love it so much. (laughs) That whole moment's great. But what's funny about it is that, so I had seen, I was really excited for this one because I had seen, and slash nervous, because again, I didn't want it to get too, too hokey to where I couldn't take it seriously anymore. And I had seen clips, like I've seen like GIFs of Godzilla doing this thing. Uh, Leah and I both kind of were like hyped for this. She's like, oh, is this where it happens? Like, I want to see it. So I called her in for it and I showed her it and she goes, oh, Okay. I was like, oh, was it like underwhelming? She's like, no, he did it way longer than I expected. And it was it was almost more ridiculous. She's like, but I expected it to feel more out of place. And I was like, no, they weirdly, it, it weirdly feels like the right thing at the right time. Like, yeah, I yeah. guess if I was in Godzilla's position, I would bounce in Riverdance too. And another reason I, people love the dub so much is when it cuts back to the commander of Planet X, I forget what he says in the Japanese cut, but the English one has graved itself in my head he goes ah a happy moment oh yeah okay i think i've read about that and it's a very happy moment so that that line just stuck with me forever so whenever i think of that scene i just instantly go ah a happy moment and he says it's so like monotone it's like there's no emotion he's like ah a happy moment (laughs) yeah i don't know it's genius i i will say that i think the monsters overall aside from Godzilla bouncing around, like they're a little more serious and like darker toned looking 
this time around? I felt like they were anyways. I don't know if you felt yeah, that way. Um, it's a new suit designed for Godzilla. So the previous two were the same suit um, sure. with slight modifications between films. So this was a completely new suit. Ghidorah had slight modifications. I think they lengthened his necks a little more. Hmm. And I think Rodan more or less stayed the same. Gotcha. But yeah, I really like the designs for the most part. Ghidorah looks amazing again. Oh, the yeah. effects are amazing again. They felt like they just kept ramping up and really going in an upward trajectory. So even though everything was pretty well done in this movie, it sadly underperformed at the box office. Okay. And you can kind of see and the repercussions of that later on. Yeah. And we'll talk about that more when it comes to it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think... Oh, okay. Sorry, to dial it back. One of my favorite lines is when they're leaving. They're flying away to leave Godzilla and Rodan on the planet. Oh, don't tell me we have the same notes on that. I really hope we do, because one of my favorite lines <laughs> is him looking at the camera and going, boy, they can be a real pain sometimes, but I feel bad. And it's just showing... Oh my Godzilla kind of waving his arms around <laughs> and Rodan just, just, they're just being pests as always. They're just being yep. obnoxious dickheads. And he's just like, yeah, they give be a real pain sometimes. And it's funny if you flash back to... The 1954s, <laughs> 11 years ago. Exactly. Like, Godzilla, like the mother holding her kids going, yeah. we're going to be with daddy soon. And like, oh, Godzilla, I feel bad for him. And then you got fucking Glenn just like, oh yeah, it's, uh, he's a real pain. Real pain in the butt. Some that little rascal. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> what he calls him too. Yeah, which is essentially like it's it's just perfect for where the franchise is at this point, and it just really goes to show how much things have changed. I really think that this one was, or it, it kind of showed me too with their action, the pattern of how these movies do action. Right, is because modern blockbusters have this tendency to try and like force in this action that doesn't really have consequences. And whereas like with these movies, they're always like, no, we're going to wipe out entire cities and like destroy shit when it goes down or like this creature's head's getting cut off or something's going down. So it's always like they actually save it for the end. Like it's always the big finale. So usually aside from Mothra versus Godzilla, as we said, like they save their like biggest action set piece for kind of the final, just like in King Kong versus Godzilla, how I was kind of like, you know, the promise of that starts to become like fleeting until you get to the end and you're like, okay, well now it's just 10 minutes of absurdity. And I remember this one doing that too. And the destruction is like next level. Oh, and this movie has, I think some of my favorite tracks that Akira Fukube has written and it's the Japanese military march. He gave it like a complete facelift and it just, I've never gotten more pumped to see a military show up in these movies until this one. It was just like, yeah, go military. And it's just, (laughs) it's so weird. Well, this one, was it this one or, uh, yeah, this was actually, it starts with the military theme. And I remember I was like, wow, I've gotten to this point in my Godzilla fandom where I can kind of point out those different motifs. And I was pretty excited when I heard that because I do, I do like that music a lot. Speaking of musical motifs, one that got introduced that's played whenever I believe Ghidorah is having his fight or it's used for both Rodan and Ghidorah, mm-hmm. but the, how's it go? It's the real high pitched trumpet sound. Um, I think during, I know. I think I know what you're talking about. It's played like right after what would have been Godzilla's section of that musical score, but it actually didn't start out in these movies, which blew my mind because it's, it's so engraved with Ghidorah and Rodan. Yeah. It actually started out with Varan. Hmm. 
he got his own movie in 1958, which that is a topic for another day. <laughs> but that one little musical mo- motif started in Varan, got lifted and put into Godzilla, and now is in just about anything with Ghidorah in it. Cool. And then, of course, this film ends with the famous Ghidorah falling off a cliff into the water, and yet more inhabitants of the coast suffer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this always happens. There's always like creatures fall into the water. Like I would just if at this point if like it was because they they definitely address in these movies that like people are aware now. Every movie like they don't reset it. Like people are always aware that like monsters are around. So yep. they kind of just like at that point I think I'd stop. They probably have insurance for it. But I don't know if insurance is necessarily going to help you from like drowning. You know, <laughs> so like there's definitely some dead people oh, after yeah. Ghidorah falling. But overall, this one's pretty good. All right, so next up is Ebra Horror of the Deep. When young Ryota and his companions become shipwrecked on Lechi Island while searching for his brother Yata, they discover that the island is the base of operations for a sinister terrorist organization called the Red Bamboo for enslaving natives of Infant Island. They also discover Godzilla asleep in a cave on the island and decide to awaken him in order to thwart the terrorists before they can complete their nuclear arsenal. However, Godzilla must also contend with the mutated monsters guarding the island, Ebra and the giant condor. In the meantime, the natives of Infant Island race to awaken Mothra so that she can save her people from Lechi Island before it is too late. And just as that description sounds, this movie is pretty full of a bunch of stuff, and this movie has a very distinct, different feel to it. However, I apparently, against many other people's belief in the Godzilla fandom, I actually really liked this one. It was definitely odd. It definitely had a lot of, um, there's a, a big surfer theme with this one. There's a bit, a oh, yeah. lot of the music is very like a mix of like Western movie soundtrack and like surfer vibes. And it's definitely, not to cut you off or anything, but no, it's the most 60s this franchise has ever got. Yes. Very much so. As in the beginning of that synopsis, the main thread of it that kind of pulls it all together is the guy's missing brother. And I actually really enjoyed that whole arc. I thought that the way the characters kind of, this ragtag group kind of gets together, you know, they think they set sail on this guy's boat who's sleeping on it, this guy's yacht. But you find out Played by Akira Takarada. Who's awesome in this. And Oh yeah, I love him. He's so good. And you find out that it's not even his yacht. He stole it. <laughs> so it's a cool little twist. And it really sets the tone for like all these characters kind of now they're stuck with this criminal guy who has this money he took. And I was really impressed by kind of how the story got all these characters together. I think that much like Ghidorah, I think that some of the elements don't always stitch together very well. But I didn't mind. I had a lot of fun with this. There was something about how inconsequential this one felt. Like it wasn't this like fate of the universe plot. I mean, it was a very small plot comparatively. And it's some of it's a little hokey, but I was actually impressed by, I thought Ebra looked pretty cool, especially with oh, shots yeah. of his giant lobster claw coming out of the water. I thought the shots were very modern and really cool looking. Yeah, this one had a different tone. It, it was fun. It didn't have like instant classic stapled all over it, but I definitely feel like I enjoyed this one a lot more than I thought I would and probably a lot more than a lot of Godzilla fans do. For me, I like this. It's not one of my favorites, but I like it. I have a respect okay. for it. This is a uh, director, June Fukuda, who goes on to direct two of my favorites of this franchise. So he, I think he directed four, maybe five altogether. 
This is honestly his second weakest, not going to lie. Not necessarily his fault, because there is a big spoiler about this. This Mm -hmm. never originally was going to be a Godzilla movie. So Toho at the time still had the license to King Kong, and this was supposed to be a King Kong movie. But they figured with how successful you know, Godzilla movies had been, even though Invasion of Astro Monster did underperform, they figured let's throw Godzilla in this, kind of scrap Kong, and get more money for it. Which, honestly, I kind of wish they hadn't done that. So every time I watch it, I always have in my mind that this was supposed to be King Kong and not Godzilla. See, now I felt the opposite. Because I actually felt like what that swap did was make Godzilla not a dickhead for a movie. And he actually feels a little more human and he expresses emotion a little more. And he's not just this like belligerent asshole who's just walking (laughs) around and occasionally accidentally saving people. Yeah, it's Uh, always a coincidence with him kind of saving the universe at times. Yeah, he's very... very self-absorbed in that sense you know if he's saving you it's because it was convenient because he wanted to whomp that monster's ass anyways he doesn't give a fuck about your little fishing village or whatever he's saving at that time and so for me it yeah it kind of made him a little more human and i kind of like just seeing him act differently i mean this is a series where i feel like aside from those last three kind of having this pretty consistent feel I do feel like this is a series that is constantly recreating itself and it doesn't need to be held to a certain standard. So I don't think Godzilla ever needs to act the same way and from one movie to the other. And I think that's what's exciting. And I think in this one, it was kind of cool just seeing him. It's such a weird scenario that like he would be replacing Kong. So I kind of liked that. And I liked that he was, that we got to see a version of Godzilla we wouldn't see in any other movie. And for me, it mostly worked. I think, again, I I feel like a lot of the monster throwdowns were really cool. I think the infamous rock volleyball between (laughs) Ebra and Godzilla probably lives on. Oh, rock volleyball. (laughs) And most likely resentment with a lot of Godzilla fans, but I I think it worked. Um, I loved it. I love the rock volleyball. It's it's Always go for rock volleyball. Yeah, it's very, again, very 60s, very that kind of like, you know, hippie teenagers on a beach like we were watching giant monster versions of that also can we just talk about how like lighthearted this movie kind of starts with you know just trying to find his brother next thing you know there's terrorists making nukes and enslaving people it's just like whoa that's a little jarring yeah i almost would have found it more interesting like i would have been fine if you took the whole terrorist organization out of it i would have been perfectly fine with him just having to find his brother who got swept up in this tribe and then also them having to escape Ebra who's guarding this island that's enough for me that's plenty you know like or maybe these are like like I think it would have been interesting if these were just infant island people who were on like a some sort of search for supplies or something on a raft and then washed up on this island and then couldn't get off because of Ebra and then like Godzilla kind of shows up and you know does his thing (laughs) does his thing stumbles into fucking up Ebra so yeah, I, I think overall I'm pretty positive on it. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, um, one thing, I did love the setting of the movie. I love the tropical vibes because this is not the only time Toho uses tropics as kind of their... We'll see it again um, very soon. Yep, and it, one of my favorite um, non-Godzilla Toho kaiju films is Space Amoeba, which I think does the uh, tropics the best in my opinion. I watched the uh, Kraken release instead of the Criterion, just kind of changed things up on my viewing experience. And I just love how vibrant the colors are in that movie. It's a good looking movie. I 
I thought it really popped and I watched the Criterion version. So I don't know about it compared to Kraken, but I thought it looked really good and it helps because again, the, the bright sixties vibe and it's ironic that the most, to me, the, one of the best fights is, is with Ebra and Godzilla in the dark stormy sky. Oh, uh, that was, that was really well done. I think the best part of that, and this is post rock volleyball. Once it gets into a real fight, there's a shot where Godzilla blasts him with a, his atomic breath and then Ebra kind of falls back into the water and there's like the smoke kind of oozing off him that oh like my. follows the pattern of the atomic breath. And it was pretty fucking awesome. It was, it was yeah. pretty cool looking. It gave me like a anime vibe. Like it felt very, um, I don't know. It was just, it looked really, really well done. And this is also the first time we ever see underwater fights too. So that was really cool that they That's tried true. to do that That's in this. Yeah, I give them applause. I mean, it, you can tell they're kind of just filming with a filter over the screen, but it's really cool that they. Um, that's one thing I thought Jun Fukuda did was he did a good job bringing in some unique shots and everything. Because uh, one of the shots I have listed in my notebook is uh, when our main crew of characters are going to rescue the Islanders from uh, their prison. We see them running in the foreground. And in the background, we see Godzilla kind of just doing his thing, walking away. And it's such a good job showing the scale between the size of the humans and the size of Godzilla. Yep. There's a lot of Definitely. like really good compositing shots uh, combining both human and Godzilla scenes. I just love the banter between the characters. I kind of liked all that. Like, I didn't care so much about the characters as I just thought the actors' performances were really great. And they had good yeah, chemistry yeah, together. I, I, I feel and, that. And I, again, I am not putting this movie on a pedestal. This movie's good. I don't think it's amazing. But the infiltration of like the terrorist base with these like four unlikely heroes banded together, it kind of had Star Wars-y vibes to bring Star Wars up again. Like it kind of felt like the Death Star infiltration scene because it's four unlikely people who all have different talents and different like, you know, you had the one guy who could like break into locks and shit. And it, it kind of had the mix of like a, you could tell it had like that bond again, coming back to like the 60s influence. It had that Especially bond. Especially like, with the, uh, the harking back a little more on the bond thing mm-hmm. is that um, theme that plays whenever Ebera's claw is popping up. Yep. This sounds very much like the James Bond. Dun, 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 it has dun, that dun, rolling dun. riff for yeah. sure. But yeah, I I was on board with all of it. It was this fun adventure and I loved that it was more low key than the others. Or a lot of goofy things like the whole, uh, like I think he finds his brother because his brother like hitches a ride on a balloon or some shit. Yeah, what, and what he just happens that? to drift to Infant Island on the air currents. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of so goofy convenient. shit like that. Yeah. Sadly, yeah, I, uh, Oops, sorry to cut you off. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, sadly, Emmy and Yumi do not return for the Shobijin, which... Oh my God, yeah. And Mothra's in this movie out of yeah. fucking God knows where. One of my notes that I took is every monster in this is a sleepy bitch because Godzilla doesn't wake up until <laughs> an true. hour in. Mothra doesn't wake up till like the last 15 minutes. And Godzilla's <laughs> somehow conveniently on the island they're on, but under like a pile of rocks. Yeah, he's like, how the hell did he get in that cave? That's what I want to know. Although he's awakened by lightning, which is fucking savage. And yeah. <laughs> that scene is pretty badass. Yeah, the shot of his eyes opening was so cool. Yes, absolutely. This movie's just a bunch of like good ideas and cool things thrown into a movie that doesn't really all stitch together. But I still think it's a little more consistent of an experience than, say, like Godzilla Raids Again or something like that. You know, like... 
I don't know. I liked the like yellow stuff they used to ward off Ebro was really neat until it yeah. didn't matter at one point. Yeah, because they're like, oh, well, let's just uh, reverse engineer the stuff and use the leaves instead of the fruit. It's yep. like, okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, from a cinematography perspective, I was pretty impressed with some of the camera work here. It was kind of refreshing. Oh, yeah. As much as I absolutely love Ishiro Honda, I do feel like he kind of fell into a groove with these movies and just kind of shot a lot of them the same way. Whereas this one, it was kind of nice to see a refreshing perspective. Um, And Fukuda got these really creative shots. There's this one shot of them when they go to find the other two guys tied up on the tree and they're like running through, I want to say it's like the thief guy and the girl, maybe Yeah, they're like running through the woods and they do a POV shot of him like pushing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that shot. And it's gorgeous. It looks great. And it's a cool reveal. Like we get to discover the people tied up as, as he does. And I thought that was pretty impressive for a movie that is probably considered one of the goofier kind of whatever Godzilla movies by a lot of people. And I so wish Fukuda got to know that because apparently he was never a fan of all the Godzilla movies he worked on or he didn't appreciate them as much because he never felt he could do the best for them. Mm -hmm. But like I said, directed two of my all-time favorite Godzilla movies and they're shot amazingly especially one of them has an even lower budget than ebera which will be the next one we talk about and and then godzilla versus mecha godzilla when we get to that one i just just mm, so good (laughs) yeah definitely definitely and yeah i actually another thing i appreciated too is in a lot of these movies we get a human cast of characters and we don't normally stick with them. They usually kind of drop off by the third act when it becomes all about the monsters. Like nine times yeah. out of 10 in these movies, that's what happens. Whereas this, on the other hand, becomes a lot more, or it kind of stays with the same human characters throughout the whole thing. And I feel yeah. like that allows you to kind of bond with them a little more. And it's a simple thing, but it, you don't see it a lot in these movies. So that was kind of a nice thing that I really appreciated. I made a note that the scene where he gets attacked by like the giant condor where Godzilla gets attacked by the giant condor. (laughs) Okay. Before you say anything, (laughs) your face says it all, but I appreciated that. First off, I went, who the fuck is this knockoff Rodan? I I found out later. Yeah, no, (laughs) I'll let you say it after, but um, I found out later why I thought that. However, one of the coolest Godzilla fighting anything shots is him blasting this thing. And then it, getting hit through the air and just like the smoke trailing off and then it bounces off a cliff and falls into the water. I thought that was a pretty badass shot. Uh, again, felt very like anime. Like the the action here is very kinetic and very like it's more fast cut. Like Fukuda's very like he's much more fast paced than Ashiro Honda, which I kind of appreciate. Yeah. Which we'll see more of in the next one, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Definitely. to um uh, the giant condor, oh my God, that scene is just it is probably the worst edited fight he's ever directed. Not going <laughs> to lie. I have no clue what's happening until that shot of Godzilla hitting him with his nuclear breath and everything. Which is the best part because you kind of think the fight's over and you're like, well, that was really dumb. And it was the equivalent of basically like a pigeon flying into someone's face and then them swatting it away for. Yeah, that's know, basically the entire 30 fight. seconds. But yeah, then it like goes to leave and swoops around and Godzilla's like, oh no, we're not done here, bitch. And yeah. <laughs> just blast the thing and that yeah. was where i was i was pretty into it i ended up dubbing him a uh, faux dan is the uh, yep. the name of the creature because uh the main reason is is the giant condor puppet is actually a rodan puppet that had been reused and from the previous two movies and they don't hide it well it's very nope. obviously 
Rodan. Yep. <laughs> um, but then, of course, uh, after that, we get, I think the movie kicks into full gear and has a pretty awesome finale from here on out because you get this crazy needle drop of like this surf music and jets fly in and he's oh, yeah. smacking those fucking things around. I must have watched one of the shots on repeat because there's basically just this like, and he does a dance too uh, after he kills them, which is oh, he's like jiggling yeah. around a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to commence their demise, he makes sure to uh, do a victory dance all over their. Of course, bodies. it's Godzilla. Just, he he has to party a little. Them. He has to boogie woogie a little. Yeah, and he's a piece of shit. But <laughs> they had to keep a little bit of God- Godzilla's dickery in there. And to which case, he then goes to the Red Bamboo Terrace base, and you have this awesome just like leveling of this place. Which was oh yeah pretty, which was pretty fun and it made up for the lack of city destruction that we get in this movie which is pretty cool which obviously the reason we don't have any city destruction is this movie was a reduced budget compared to invasion Definitely. of astro monster which something i forgot to mention invasion of astro monster is it was the first time stock footage had been used to help pad out the runtime and boy does that happen more later <sighs> we'll cross that bridge when we get there yeah, I I also thought that when Godzilla squares off against Ebra at the end, they do these cool like Dutch angles to kind of set up like a duel, like a Western, which I've noticed Fukuda actually does later on in other movies too, which is really cool. Uh, he loves squaring off the monsters, which I feel like is something that the other movies don't do as much. I really love it. I like it a lot. I think it's really oh, cool. Yeah. And then of course he ends with Godzilla ripping his arms off. Oh my like, God, can we talk about how violent that is? So good. It's so good. Yeah, I love how he starts clapping them together as Ebra's like screeching away because it just had its arms ripped off and Godzilla's like, good, good, good. Yeah, I, lo- I love it. And and again, yeah, back to like, Godzilla's just a savage in this movie. I love the, you know, when the Jets attack him, he's like, okay, well, you know, being, <laughs> as always, he holds a grudge. So he's like, well, you know what'll make us even, Steven? If I go fuck up your entire base. And he goes yep. and fucks up their entire base and then goes, oh, you got a little got a little lobster guard in this island, eh? Well, fuck him. <laughs> and just yep. rips its arms off and beats yeah, and the shit out of him. And then claps Mothra him like shows a fucking up, savage. Mothra shows up to save her islanders and Godzilla wants to friggin' pick a fight with her. He's like, oh, I'll kick your ass too. Yeah, and Mothra's basically like, just grow up, dude. Get over yeah, it. You know, slaps him with her wing, grabs the islanders and fucks off. Yep. And then, of course, something that becomes another motif in these movies is them flying away and the people looking at Godzilla on the island (laughs) as it's about to explode. And then the the island blows up in a really cool fashion. It looks pretty cool. Oh, yeah. It's actually a really well done explosion, too. Yeah. And I love his little, like, kind of cannonball he does into the ocean. (laughs) It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah. I do think, though, in these movies, it does just really make me cringe when I think of these poor suit actors already in these sweaty, hot, heavy suits having to jump in the water after. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That must have been fucking miserable. But yeah, so that's... Ebra Horror of the Deep. All right. Would you like to introduce our next one? Yep. Film number eight is Son of Godzilla. United Nations scientists on Sagal Island are undertaking an experiment in altering the climate with the goal of solving the inevitable world food shortage as the human population explodes. When the experiment goes awry and triggers a radiation storm, giant mantises native to the island are mutated into deadly kaiju known as Kamakaris. When Kamakaris unearths an egg which hatches into Minya, a baby Godzilla, Godzilla himself comes to the island to rescue the infant. 
But while Godzilla is more than a match for the huge mantises, he and his newly adopted son soon face the giant spider Kumanga, which also dwells on the island. As Godzilla fights to save Minya from Kumanga's clutches, the scientists must find a way to escape Sogel with their lives. Yeah, this is uh, one of my two favorite Godzilla films from Jun Fukuda. This is just easily one of the most lighthearted films out there for the Godzilla Absolutely. franchise. The opening theme is kind of dorky, but then turns into like a cool, almost like jazz theme, which I believe he is the same composer for Versus Mechagodzilla, which again is more jazz music. Mm-hmm. But this is another one that I grew up watching, and it is probably one of the most divisive films in the franchise. You either love it or you hate it, and I'm one of the ones that love it. And so to harken back on uh, Minya, because this is now the introduction of a baby Godzilla, which in Ant-Man, when Scott gives his daughter that toy and she's like, oh my God, it's so ugly. I love it. That is how I feel about Minya. <laughs> yeah, I wish I felt the same way, brother. <laughs> Minya is horrible to look at, to listen to. <laughs> I So I'll dial it back a little bit. So when I got into like Astro Monster around that time, Mothra and Ghidorah had made me have this feeling of like, wow, I didn't think watching all these Godzilla movies would just make me want to constantly consume more Godzilla movies. And this is really cool. And I'm glad because I'll be watching a lot more of these. And around Astro Monster, I was like, man, this is good, but I'm starting to pick up on a lot of patterns. It's kind of a little same samey and I don't want to get like Godzilla fatigue. And then Ebra came around and was surprisingly refreshing for me and kind of helped, you know, revitalize my interest in these and kept me going. But I knew that if one came around that I wasn't really feeling as much, that Godzilla fatigue would set in and I'd be like, oh boy. Okay. And I'd be desperate for one to click with me as much as say like Mothra or Ebra. This one was not that movie. I understand the appeal. I genuinely do. However, the little greasy Danny DeVito looking Ninja Turtle (laughs) monster that is Minya is just awful. And I don't think it's fair to Pugs saying that he's so ugly he's cute because Pugs are so ugly they're cute. Minya is so ugly that he gives me nightmares. <laughs> and his little... Oh, trust me. As the series goes on, he does the same for me. His little dead eyes are just like so much for me to handle. And I will admit there are a couple moments, a couple comedic moments, interactions with him and Godzilla that I think are endearing, I guess, if he didn't look like a little Danny DeVito Ninja Turtle monster. Yeah. But he does and it's very distracting and it's very hard to take the movie seriously i feel like the other creature designs like the the kamakuras yeah and the um manga yes kamanga i thought was pretty cool they're oh the puppetry very, on them were great so they're great they're great puppets but they're so and i you could say this about ebra too because he's essentially just a giant lobster there this is the point in the series where they kind of just got lazy with the enemies right is it's like yeah you went from introducing King Ghidorah to them bringing Rodan in the mix. And then after that, it just is like, how about just giant bugs and shit? And, <laughs> and you're like, okay, sure. It's cool. I get it. It worked in Lord of the Rings. Why won't it work here? And it, it does for the most part, but I don't know. It just, it feels like a lot of the creativity felt kind of sucked out of the franchise at this point for me. And it's understandable because only Tamiyuki Tanaka returned. So there's no longer the big four working on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Subaraya is only supervising the effects at this point because he's busy with Ultraman. Um, Theme song helped. 
I was oh, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't have known which franchise for sure. <laughs> Let the theme song help. But I just genuinely love this one. I love how low-key it is, just like the last one. And I just love the fact that no one's really being antagonistic towards Godzilla. Like, this is the first time he's not really, you know, purposely going to, you know, he still fucks up their base because it's Godzilla. But he's, you know, doing his own thing. The humans are just kind of leaving him alone for once. But let's not act like he's a good guy in this. Oh, yeah. No, he's not. Like, 100% good guy. He's a horrible dad. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The worst dad. He threatens to beat his son. There's literally a moment where I forget what he's training him to do. The atomic breath, which... Yeah. Um, Sorry, funny funny thing on that is uh, that whole red lake that they're going to be using for medicine mm-hmm. um, to help the team that's on the island. How the hell are they going to use it now that it's been irradiated with Godzilla's atomic breath? Like, I'm pretty sure that's like just give it. Yeah, let's give our islanders, you know, pure radiation at its finest. It's best not to think about it. Yeah, that, that that still bugs me to this day. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I'm just like, you guys are giving them radiation poisoning. Stop it. Yeah, that's that was the least of my concerns with this movie. And I don't want to be like, I, I think there's a lot of creative moments. And when we get there, we'll talk about something towards the end, which I actually really, really liked. I feel like this movie had potential for me to really like it. I think I, would, I just, like, it wasn't quite just like give into it fun, like say, like the last one was. It was at times, but I think it took itself just a tiny bit too seriously. And I wish it was a little more, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what I wanted out of this movie, but it, it didn't click with me for whatever reason. And for some reason, it's clicked with me and I, it's honestly one of my favorite ones to come back and rewatch. Well, I think it helps too that like obviously you grew up on it. So I think a lot of things, and it's not just like a nostalgic bias, but I do feel like we're able to kind of, I think it's a lot easier to kind of like see the good in something if you've like grow up through like when something's, before something reaches that point of where it would maybe come off cheesy for you or yeah. like, you know, I, th- I think you're able to appreciate it as like not only this piece of nostalgia, but just, you know, the thing in and out. So you're able to appreciate it yeah. for, you're able to look past like what Minya looks like <laughs> necessarily yeah. because you grew up watching it when you didn't think he looked that bad. So yeah. And like, it's cheesy. Definitely. Like when he's playing with Godzilla's tail while Godzilla's trying to sleep. It's also kind of adorable. That's one of the few oh, moments yeah. I was like, well, it's kind of sweet, I guess. But you can also tell that the production values have definitely dropped even you know, more since the last one. Because during the really awesome fight with Kamakaris, beginning when Godzilla first you know, runs in with his son, is a, for a blink-and-you'll-miss-it scene, the top of the set is shown. I noticed it. I absolutely I was watching it with Leah, and I paused it. And yeah, when he picks up the mantis, right? Yeah, and he's about to like the camera start whacking it on the ground. Yeah, the camera follows it up, and yeah, you see a little bit of the set. I did see that, which is weird because that's the only time that's ever happened in the franchise. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more, honestly. I especially with the later ones that we'll be uh, talking in part two. Mm-hmm. Like that just shocks me because it's just. I mean, granted, yeah, it's a blink and you'll miss it, but. When you see it, it, it sadly is stuck with me now. And it just like kind of takes me out a little. I mean, you'd expect with kind of the inherent hamminess of this franchise that it would happen. Stuff like that would happen more like boom mics and shit. But I think it goes to show how seriously they took this franchise. And I feel like that's yeah. why it's that earnestness that I feel like even this one, 
even this one that I did not click with, I still 100% see the heart. Like it's still fully on display how much the people behind these movies, no matter who the director is, you can tell that normally they're very invested and they've rarely, you know, aside from maybe Raids Again, feel like these cynical, like let's just pump them out to make money movies. And they feel like these like, well, let's work with what we have to. I do feel like this one, the budget's a little, you feel the low budget a little more than Ebra. Because it's definitely shot more on sets than Ebro was. Ebro was definitely, yes. you could tell, was filmed on location for a good portion of it. Where this one, you can definitely feel the on-setness that this This felt had. more like a long 60s TV show episode than like an actual movie for me. Just in kind of its production. So, uh, want to talk about that end scene? Yes. So, the whole point was that they were trying to basically re-stimulate the environment, right? And yep. get there to and get there to have get to where this island. Yeah, they want to be able seasons. to. So, their whole expedition to that island and everything was they were creating a weather device so they could, you know, use like the Sahara and the Siberian tundra, turn those into areas that could actually become habitable and make food just because Mm -hmm. like they said population of earth is increasing and you know supply and demand so after the first trial they fuck up and create camacaris and so they use the second trial as kind of an escape plan to get away from all the monsters because there's camacaris minya godzilla and kumanga now are all on the island and not a very habitable place for the uh humans so Mm -hmm. as they're trying to freeze the island to hopefully stop the monsters and it ends with one of the sweetest moments in the entire franchise where as the island's freezing over, Godzilla's you know, making a beeline to the ocean because that's what he does. And his son can't keep up with him because of all the snow and just frankly much smaller than Godzilla. And when Godzilla realizes his son isn't going to make it, he comes back and curls around his son, protecting him and going into hibernation. Which is such a shockingly beautiful moment that... You kind of, it almost makes up for him being a total neglectful, mean prick for most of the movie. And it's, yeah, it's, again, another moment that reminds you where the franchise's heart is at. And the shot itself looks gorgeous. And Oh my God, it's one of the best shots in the franchise. I, I was amazed. I, was, I will agree with that. And again, I did not really like this movie, but that moment was, was really, really, really cool and you also don't see a lot of snow in these movies so that was just kind of a refreshing setting because again other than that the setting of the movie kind of felt to me like a knockoff of Ebra's, like just kind of like a cheaper version of that and it was very nice to kind of see not only this refreshing setting but have it be you know there for such a key emotional moment of the franchise that actually worked really well for me and i wish that menu wasn't so ugly horrible (laughs) yes so uh such an abomination that i could actually appreciate it a little more but again i think that if you're able to you know look past minya's appearance and if you're able to just kind of embrace this movie as a lot of people have because i know you're not the only one i've read some stuff oh, yeah. too i know there's a lot of people that this movie means a lot to them because i do think that even though i've never seen this movie before this watch it does have this nostalgic feel to it like it, it feels like a movie that I grew up with, even though I didn't, you know, there's something, yeah, there's some warmness about it that I do. I can't appreciate, even if I don't really like this movie, which is weird to say out loud, but that it is what it is. It's a complex franchise and it makes you yeah. feel complex things. And I think you're, 
it's a franchise where you're able to take things seriously when you least expect it or vice versa, you know, and I really like that about it. Also, shout out to one moment where they're feeding fruit to... (laughs) Yeah. Quote of the movie is, this will pep you up. And then cue a very awkward animated tossing of a lemon or something uh, to Minya. And Minya just going... And it looks totally real. That is like the worst composited shot that's in the entire so movie. Horrible, but it's but it adds to the appeal. I mean, it, it basically looks yeah. like she's tossing this like Pac-Man pebble at his <laughs> mouth, and it's like bloop. Like I half expected to hear like a bloop at the end of it. I know, right? <laughs> but yep, that is a uh, that is oh. Godzilla. Do you have anything else? And, you want uh, to yeah, little weird fact that for some reason Toho's doing is uh, so the the actor Akira Akubo. <laughs> This was his first starring role in the franchise. He plays a character named Goro Maki, which for some reason, just about every era has a character named Goro Maki in it. Interesting. Which we'll discuss when they pop up in the rest of the franchise. And it's just such a weird thing that it's like, why is it that character? Why isn't it like Sarazawa? Yeah, which is cool, though. I like that. It's kind of like uh, I was telling you the other day, like with uh, if anyone's played the Final Fantasy franchise, there's always a Sid. And there's always a Wedge and Biggs. Why are they named after Star Wars characters? Who knows? Yeah, unless you have anything else you wanted to add? No, that, it's just that it's one of my favorite movies of the franchise. Yeah. Cool, man. Cool. So moving on, uh, we have Destroy All Monsters. This will be the last one we'll talk about for this first Episode. segment. So if Ghidorah was like the Avengers, this was like the end game. This was kind of end game. Yeah. This was kind of, kind of end game. So at the close of the 20th century, yes, I forgot this takes place in the deep future of 1999. All of earth's monsters are contained on monster land, a facility in the Okasawara islands where they can live in peace without threatening humanity's safety. However, alien invaders known as Gilak seize control of the island and its monsters, unleashing them in a destructive campaign around the world. Katsuo Yamabe and the crew of the Moonlight SY-3 find themselves on the front lines of the battle against Kilox as they struggle to discover and disable the source of the alien's mind control. But even when the Earth monsters are freed from the alien's control, they must engage in a final confrontation with King Ghidorah, who is now under the control of the Kilox. So this one is one of the few that I have seen before, but I watched this kind of out of context of having seen the whole series, which is a really bad way to watch this movie. I don't recommend it. Do not skip to this one. Again, it's kind of like skipping the end game. It's just, it's not going to add up. This one's interesting. It's weird to me because I think as a 60s sci-fi movie, it's awesome. As a Godzilla movie, I don't know if it really delivers. I think there's a ton of cool ideas and set pieces. There's some cool destruction in the middle. There's a fight that is, albeit awesome, but pretty brief at the end that they kind of build up to you know it's kind of like if you got to the end of avengers endgame and that big showdown is like five minutes long you're kind of like all right (laughs) and um it was a little surprising i think they they kind of got i really loved a lot of the the way they kind of introduce you to this like the movie is sort of introduced in these like vignettes that kind of feel like an introduction to monster land like if you were watching like a documentary or something yeah Uh, and they show these clips, which we will, thanks to stock footage, see a lot later <laughs> um, yeah. of the monsters on this island. They show them a lot. And they kind of, uh, they, really, they really do a good job of building this one up. 
but eventually it kind of becomes this almost like action espionage sci-fi hybrid that really again kind of forgets <laughs> to be a Godzilla movie despite yep. the main crux of the plot being that aliens have brainwashed the monsters and gotten them off of monster land and to go fuck shit up all over the world so oh yeah how do you feel about this one Josh so rewatching it now my childhood nostalgia is actually sadly kind of gone on this one I rewatched it and I found myself kind of bored with it not gonna lie I liked a lot of elements, but a lot of it also felt kind of half-baked. Like, I love the idea of Monster Island and how the humans got all the monsters together. And it was cool seeing, like, that beginning little montage of seeing, like, all the monsters kind of, like, doing their own little thing, just chilling and being on Monster Island. That was really cool. It's actually I love, got one of, love that stuff. I got one of my favorite shots, and it's when Godzilla was about to leave the island and the device that kept him there activated and he turned around that yep. shot is for some reason just ingrained in my head <laughs> yep i love the destruction scene of tokyo where it's godzilla rodan manda and mothra all doing their own little thing destroying the city that was badass i love the you know them bringing back angiris mm-hmm. which that was amazing to see him again and like you said the human stuff it felt like toho kind of had two movies and didn't really know how to splice them together because i love like the espionage like it reminds me of the mysterians which was Mm -hmm. humans versus aliens and that one there was no monsters outside of one giant robot which i'll discuss further down the line because it appears in godzilla but that one was strictly just humans versus aliens and very intriguing. Where this one, I was really intrigued with the humans going after the key locks. And like there was some scenes on the moon that had beautiful like tracking shots of the SY3 as it was going across the moon. It was just like, this is like some peak sci-fi stuff. And it's like, oh wait, this is a Godzilla movie though. Where's he at? That's and then he'll just kind of appear. And I feel, I do feel like in some ways it felt like a return to form, right? Because there's a lot of Astro Monster in this. There's a lot of Ghidorah. Yeah. There's a lot of like, it almost feels like it could have been a callback to that like trio of really great Honda movies. Um, yeah, which is funny because he returns to direct this one as well. Exactly. Yep. And I feel, and you can tell, I mean, you can totally tell it's got a more this was when i was kind of like it was refreshing to see his big broad cinematic approach returning and i really like that i really wanted to love this one so bad and it's i i personally like it quite a bit but i have to kind of not look at it as a godzilla movie i mean i think that the stuff with there's some really cool shots of like the sinister like the woman in the red dress walking around who gets abducted by the key locks she is or she gets like kind of brainwashed uh by the little device she's really cool she feels like a really i love her walking around with the sinister smile while like things are getting destroyed in the background oh yeah that was iconic shots yeah that's when you get you understand this grand vision he had for this movie i almost feel like they should have just made a a two-hour godzilla movie for once yeah um, yeah this is this is one that screams that because toho wasn't afraid of doing long movies because seven samurai how many how long is that three hours uh yeah like three and a half i think yeah, and Something that was crazy. the same, came out the same year as the original Godzilla. So it's like Toho wasn't afraid for doing long epics. And this one, it needed that, to be honest. Or maybe even could have done the controversial two-parter. 
Yeah, it's just different when you've got like a movie like Seven Samurai is obviously like, while it's it's kind of got elements of an action blockbuster, it's also a period piece and considered yeah. a more prestigious work by at that point a pretty, a, a becoming an up and coming director who was very well revered by critics. So I feel like it felt a little more comfortable banking on something like that. But then like with this, it's much more genre heavy and it's, and you know, they've gotten mixed payoffs with these Godzilla movies financially, yeah. you know? And the reason why I was thinking that they should have put more money into it is it was supposed to be the last one. Mm-hmm. This was supposed to be the grand finale of the Godzilla franchise. So it also feels kind of underwhelming in that sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. What is the name of the serpent guy, the serpent monster thing? Manda. So is he, is Manda from another franchise? Yep. This is also kind of a celebration of Toho's special effects movies. So Gorosaurus, he appeared in King Kong Escapes, which came out, I believe, a year before this one. Then Varan was in its own movie. But Varan, sadly, only gets like a two-second cameo in this one because the suit they were going to use was absolutely just in terrible condition. So they just said, screw it, we're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Baragon was in its own movie, Frankenstein Conquers the World, which that suit they couldn't really use because it had been an Ultraman where it had been repurposed about 8 billion times. So it was also <laughs> in terrible condition. Naturally. So there was a scene with the Paris attack where Gorosaurus is somehow a T-Rex is a burrower. Makes no <laughs> sense because that was spo- that out. Checks out. That was supposed to be Baragon, because even in the script, they never changed it from Baragon to Gorosaurus. So they mistakenly say, oh yeah, that's Baragon, when it's clearly Gorosaurus. So it's just like, that was another scene that they had, you know, so you get elements like that that feel a little rushed. Yeah. Just to cut to the final battle, so they build up that it's going to be all the Earth's monsters. We get, you know, it's almost like a one... You know, each monster gets its own introduction for this final fight. And then it ends up just being Godzilla and Garrus and Garosaurus versus Ghidorah. Well, Minya does his own little dumb thing. Mothra and Kamunga hang out in the background. Rodan fucks they shoot, off. They shoot of webs. Them. They shoot webs. Okay, yeah, they shoot webs, and that's about <laughs> it. Rodan just fucks off the second Ghidorah shows up. Varan, Manda, and Baragon are literally, they don't, I don't even think the puppets move that much. They just kind of chill on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So it's just like they build up this epic fight and it's over almost in the snap of a finger. But there are some great friggin' shots in that fight. There definitely are. There definitely are. And there's some really cool monster moments. I think it's just, yeah, it's just kind of a bummer that they didn't have more. I don't know if they were lacking in time with this one, but it definitely felt like they were. And it would have been nice to kind of have this one have a little more breathing room just in general. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far uh, between releases, because so far from 1964 up until now, mm-hmm. um, all the Godzilla films had been yearly releases. Sure. And so for Destroy All Monsters and everything, I wonder if they, instead of doing it as like an anniversary film, they should have just pushed it back and maybe not have it be come out a year after Son of Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah, so this was kind of what they expected to be sort of the finale of it all, right? Yeah. Which is kind of why we decided to... Draw the line here, because it's kind of bookends, started with Honda and ends with Honda for this. Yep. Yeah, I think it's... I wish I had more to say about it. I really do. I, I think it's just one that I appreciate. I 
enjoy on certain levels, but like you said, occasionally it, it just drags to a halt and only in the places that you don't really care about that you're not as invested in and the stuff we are invested in, there's just not enough of. So yeah. I think it's something um, that they kind of missed the mark, but I like where their heads were at with the, the whole idea anyways. And thankfully we kind of got what they were probably aiming for in 2004. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that one when you get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Did you have anything to say about Destroy All Monsters? It introduced one of my favorite suit designs for Godzilla. The 68 suit is easily I, I one of did, my favorites. I did mark that he looks significantly less doofy in this movie. Yeah, he. this was one of the best designs that they had for Godzilla. And thankfully, we did get to see it for the next handful of films. But I'll talk more about that in the next part. But uh, I was really happy to see Angiris return because, honestly, you kind of forget he's a thing in the franchise. And then next thing you know, he's back and he literally stays back until almost the end of the Showa era. Yeah, his appearances don't feel quite as deliberate as, say, like Rodan's or Mothra's. Like, usually when yeah. Mothra's in a movie, the plot's written around her. And Giris is just kind of there. But yeah. we, we do get more of him later, which is really cool. Yeah, because... um. This was also the era that introduced the top five for Toho. Godzilla, King Ghidorah, Mothra, Rodan. Okay, excuse me. Four of the top five. We'll save the last one for next part. Fair enough. All right, man. If you're if you're good with that one, I'm good with that one. I am too. Sweet. Well, um, so that was part one of us covering the Showa era of Godzilla films. We are going to be doing the final six as well as ranking all of these, which we'll be doing at the end of each era. And every era we get to, we're going to be including the past ones from other eras and ranking that, if that makes sense. Thank you so much for tuning in to our very first podcast ever. This is really exciting for us. And uh, we're hoping that this can be a regular thing. We hope you guys like it. I want to thank Josh for joining me on this adventure. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank my buddy Matt Williamson, who is doing the amazing artwork for this podcast, which we're really excited about to have his talent there to help us out. And yeah, we will see you guys next time when we escape to Monster Island.